Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. As always, I'm your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me is... Catherine! And we are here this week, in our last week of Spooktober. Uh, technically, by the time you're hearing this, we will be into the month of November, past All Saints Day. But for us, it is still a little bit spooky, and we are going to be talking about um, a film that a lot of people have come around on these days and sort of discovered, quote-unquote, and that is Brad Anderson's 2001, I'm going to go ahead and call it an atmospheric thriller, more than a straight horror film, although there is some horrific stuff going on, uh, his 2001 film Session 9, starring a whole host of people that went on to tremendous success. Uh, but possibly most notably David Caruso, the first man to bear his ass on network television, um, which will be the only way that I choose to remember him for the remainder of my life. We don't want to talk about CSI Miami. <laughs> There's uh, a lot of CSI people we? in this. Uh, yes, surprisingly. Um, Paul Guilfoyle, he plays Paul the Gilfoyle. he mm -hmm. plays the, the cop on the show that he was on. That's right, <laughs> head cop. <laughs> He was he was also a CSI head cop guy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's a couple other uh, people that make their way into this film. Somebody that we've already discussed, uh, one Josh Lucas, who was the um, bad science guy in Hulk 2003 uh, and uh, gets to, to play the heel a little bit in this one, too. Uh, so an interesting cast, a uh, curious film, uh, a small budget affair basically using uh, possibly one of the greatest settings for a film of this type in history, uh, which is an actual abandoned asylum. And now kind of historically significant because it was torn down. Yeah, nobody can go there and shoot. Nobody can reproduce what they were able to produce with this film. And, uh, and it, is, it is something, uh, as our discussion will undoubtedly reveal. But before we get into our discussion of uh, Session 9, we actually do have some things to talk about that we are watching and, and you know potentially recommending this week. So, uh, Catherine, I'll let you go first, because I know you have to talk about a Mike Flanagan joint, I, which we're always pretty hyped about around here. I did finally finish uh, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Um Highly enjoyable. Different. I've heard a lot of, of feedback that people didn't find it as scary as Hill House, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which is definitely true. It's just um, the source material is not as scary. Uh, in general, I mean, A Haunting of Hill House is based on the Shirley Jackson novel. Shirley Jackson's an American writer. Um, Turn of the Screw is the source material for Bly Manor, and that's an English like not, not is it Victorian? Yeah, it's Victorian. Um, late eighteen hundreds. Uh, much subtler, like not as outwardly scary um, as the the Jackson novel. So I can understand why people didn't maybe have the same experience with it. However, I enjoyed it. Um, parts of it I enjoyed a little bit more than Hill House. Uh, mm -hmm. It certainly stumbled a little bit with, with exposition and kind of getting through the story that it had to tell, but I, I ended up really enjoying it. Um, and it was nice to see those actors and actresses that I've come to really enjoy make an appearance again. 
Definitely. I, I think the anthology approach to this series is going to be a strength. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of people recommend uh, American Horror Story to me yeah. on a variety of occasions, uh, which I'll admit I, I didn't care for the first season. Uh, I made it most of the way through that one. I think to one of the many instances of Dermot Mulroney masturbating, and I was like, you know, I'm okay. <laughs> I've seen this uh, enough good. times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty commonplace around around my house, just watching <laughs> Dermot Mulroney masturbating. <laughs> and, and I was like, you know, I think I'm good. Uh, but the second season, Asylum, uh, I kind of got into. I thought that one was was pretty good. Uh, didn't really care for where it went, like how it how it landed at the very end. But the season itself was compelling enough. Um, and then I made it most of the way through Coven as well, which I thought was was very strong. Uh, again, I don't think I finished it. Uh, not because the show was bad or I hated it. I think I just kind of got doing other things and never came back to it. But. But I haven't really followed it, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, but I like the anthology format where we bring back a lot of the same performers and we kind of throw them into different roles. We play against your expectations because, oh, they were this person last time, but this time they're this person. And, you know, that kind of stuff can be really fun from a sort of meta storytelling point. And, um, you know, I've, I've been excited to dig into Bly Manor as well. We, we haven't started it yet. It's still on the list. And, um. Uh, you know, we certainly plan to come to it as soon as possible. You know, it's mostly going to be a weekend or you don't have anything going on and we can just kind of delve in and try and do the whole thing. Well, if you have the chance, uh, rewatch The Innocents first because I I love that movie and I think mm-hmm. having that fresh in your head will kind of make you appreciate <laughs> their take on it a little bit better. Um, sure. So that's my recommendation, but I do think you should check it out because it's, it's really good. Yes, I have every intention uh, of doing so. Um, you know, I've always been a fan of the James brothers. You know, they were both Americans, but renowned Anglophiles. You know, James even wound up basically becoming a British subject. Pretty much. Uh, or Henry did. Uh, William remained here in the States. But, yeah. you know, they spent extensive time in Europe. And if anything, that provides a really cool perspective on... Bly Manor because it really is a sort of outsider's view of you know the stately British home with the secrets inside you know it's it's a very sort of American take on a traditional British setup um in some ways I think it's what Du Maurier does so brilliantly in her career you know 40 years later is she kind of takes and deconstructs these British staples and structures and then sort of you know throws them against the wall and kicks them over and and does all kinds of interesting cool things with them um but it's just a much more subtle approach you know whereas uh American horror writers you know even though now we would consider someone like Shirley Jackson restrained, right? We would look at her and be like, oh, oh very much so. Very you know, so. But at the, at the time, she was just out of this world. I mean, I, I've read, you know, in, you know, I used to teach the lottery in my classes and kids now would see it as rather tame, but I would pull out some of the reviews of that story and stories from that, sh- that collection um, when she published it and just the terror in people's, you know, reviews it and they're, they're disgust, right? How dare she, you know, do something like this was always interesting to throw at them to be like, this is just how much we've changed in, you know, the 60 years since. Different values. Yeah. I'm just different values, different, in a different focus from a cultural perspective, I guess, but that's good. 
So yes, that will will get moved up the list, no doubt. Uh, well, the one that I have to show about was a completely surprise. Uh, I actually started this morning and I finished the show today. Uh, it was only eight episodes, 40 minutes. So, I mean, it wasn't like a huge time investment. I did it while I was kind of watched while I was doing other things. But um, the new um, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost show on Amazon Prime, Truth Seekers. Um, huh. I checked that out. And um, surprisingly good. I'm not going to, to say that it's incredible must watch i mean you know a lot of what simon Pegg and nick frost have done you know falls into the essential watching category um and, and i don't know if i would put this in that space it's not quite that good but it does have a nice through line to it uh, i've always found nick frost to be an incredibly watchable actor you know Me too. I, mean, I think he's just he he just commands the screen in a in an entirely different way than most actors attempt to command the screen, and it's it's just really really interesting to watch him work, um, because he's sort of got the market cornered on playing the beleaguered, hyper intelligent nerd who's also a bit of a doof, you know. It just it it's it's a an archetype that he has basically defined for the last twenty years, and I still find that. Basically, he's the only one that can do it with any skill, um, on on reg with a regular, you know, on the regular basis. Uh, Simon Pegg is in it, although his role is backgrounded. I have a feeling if they go to a second season, it looks like his role might expand. But the setup is solid. Uh, basically, this guy is a uh, Wi-Fi and broadband installer in the UK for a company called Smile that is getting ready to push their six G network. Uh, throughout the UK. So, you know, it's not 5G, it's 6G. It's one better. <laughs> of course. And uh, and so he's, it's one of those things you think he's like a, a screw up at the beginning because his house is a mess and he's kind of getting ready for work in the morning. They, they play with some, it, technically it's a horror comedy. There are legitimate moments of horror, but yet it's also, you know, sort of grounded in, in humor. Uh, and most of the top pretty over overt sort of, you know, it's not black humor even. It's it's pretty straightforward slapstick type stuff. Again, the blend that you would sort of expect from Peg and Frost. And uh, so as this installer, he finds himself going into all of these strange places. So over the years, he's developed a YouTube channel called The Truth Seeker, where as he's doing his installs in these great British mansions, these you know, derelict hotels that are being revamped to, uh, you know, get people back into them as bed and breakfast and stuff. He's developed this YouTube channel where he investigates, you know, strange hauntings and um, has not found a ton of success, but, you know, continues sort of doing it. And then Peg is his boss at this smile, you know, internet company. And he just loves him, right? He just thinks he's the best. He's like, you're my number one guy. And so, of course, he gets partnered up with a new guy at the company who doesn't have any frame of reference for all this stuff, or so he thinks, and and they start going on adventures together. And um, it's it's a surprisingly effective setup. There is one more character thrown into the mix at the end of the second episode, I think, that has a very interesting arc. Um, just a really, I mean, it was fun to just sort of blow through and, and just sort of enjoy. Um, a lot of great, you know, sort of British comedians, uh, Julian Barrett, has a fantastic turn as Sir Simon Twinebee, I believe his name <laughs> is. Um, and he is like a, a sort of a religio-scientific guru who is is 
you know, got a reputation for sort of paranormal study, but yet has taken it in this strange direction. And now people kind of look up to him as a leader, all of this different stuff. And he's really good. Roddy McDowell is in it, just plays Nick Frost's dad, uh, who lives in the same house and refuses to wear pants. It's just, it's get a, they get a lot of humor mileage out of that. Uh, and then his partner is really good. Uh, I know his first name's Samson. Maybe Samson K.O., I think, is his name. Uh, he's done a lot of, of British television work that I'm unfortunately unfamiliar with. But uh, he's very good. He plays uh, Nick Frost's new partner, uh, whose name in the series is Elton John. <laughs> which, of course, they get a lot of mileage out of that, too. Um, but just a really fun, you know, just sort of goofy series to to blow through and I was surprisingly uh, surprisingly into it as I started this morning. Nice. So, yeah. So no, definitely a, a recommendation. You know, most of us have Amazon prime now for one reason or another. So throw it on the old telly if you get a chance, but so let's uh, let's get into it. Let's get right down to session number nine. Um, I found this film in a, Hastings, which was in the, the college town that I was living in at the time. Uh, this would have been my junior year of college, I guess, if I'm going to date myself. And uh, I went to Hastings on the regular, looked for weird stuff, movies that, you know, were strange. Hastings, very famously, the back wall of Hastings just had, I mean, it was all alphabetical, but somehow the like all the weird stuff ended up on the back wall. And I remember going through and seeing this one, and it had a pretty decent cover. I mean, a lot of cover art in the early 2000s was it was just red and streaky. I mean, everybody's trying to do seven, basically. Like everybody, if you made a horror movie or a movie with thriller elements, you tried to make your cover look like David Fitcher's Seven. That's pretty much what everybody did. And this one fell into that. Uh, it had the stark, you know, the opening image of the film, this stark shot of a. Uh, hospital chair, you know, one of the ones with tie downs in it in the middle of a hallway and then, you know, just sort of the building behind it. And so I saw the cover, read the back, uh, noticed it was by Brad Anderson, who had gotten my attention um, for some of his earlier work that I had enjoyed. And so I decided to uh, take a chance and, and we, we rented it. Um, I don't think I've seen it since. I'm pretty sure I haven't. Uh, but man, it left an impression. And it's one of those movies that if somebody says, man, I'm looking for something that's scary, but not, I don't want to say like gory or terrifying, because this movie is both of those things. But for some reason, this is one that I generally suggest to people because it's it's very palatable horror. It's very tense. It's It's very frightening at times, but... It's a horror film that if you aren't really into horror films, there's enough here that I think you can enjoy it uh, and get quite a bit out of it. I agree with that. Um, I found so, this on Netflix when they brought it to Netflix, seemingly when Netflix streaming started, because it's been on there since the beginning of time. I've, it must be one of the cheapest films to license because they've never I, gotten rid yeah, of it. That seems um, about right. Yeah, it is. It has been around for a long time. Uh, this movie, I I think it did get a very very small theatrical release. Played at a, I think it got a lot of. Uh, I think it was featured at Butnamathon, the the back when Ain't It Cool News was a thing. I think it was featured at Butnamathon, did the festival circuit, and then you know basically just went to DVD eventually. 
but you know it did okay but i you know it didn't really make any money but apparently it was made for very little money as well like the the budget was extremely extremely low um which i think plays out in the film i mean it is a it's a capsule film right it's made in one location for the most part um small set of actors you know simple setups you know just it, you can feel that early 2000s indie vibe going on in the midst of everything else but um, so session nine is probably one of the earliest examples that I can think of. I mean, they've always been around where, you know, the whole film is centered on an asylum, right? Like these things are really common now with the ghost hunters craze, you know, let's go to a spooky old building and just see what happens. And this is one of the earliest examples of that, that, that I can remember in popular film, uh, or film in general, where that was just kind of the milieu. It felt a little bit like Blair Witch Project. Uh, obviously, it's it's not found footage or anything like that, but it just had that vibe for me, even back when I watched it the first time, of you know a group of people in a frightening location, disoriented and discombobulated, and trying to fumble their way through it. And uh, combined with sort of the tropey elements of these uh, sessions, right? These recorded tapes that they discover of uh, one of the former mental patients being interviewed. Um, but it, it certainly has, uh, it's got a lot of things going on that would become sort of standard ghost horror tropes in the next decade. Yeah, and, but, and you know, it probably had a lot to do with that. 2001, these were, these were all relatively cool things to do in your movie still. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they, they definitely, um, you know, they broke a little bit of, of new ground here. Um, I guess if we want to talk about Brad Anderson a little bit, you know, after watching this and, and then his follow up to this film, which is uh, 2004's The Machinist, which a lot of people are familiar with. I don't, yeah. I talk to people and they're like, yeah, I know that movie, but I don't think they saw that movie. I think they're aware of it because it's most famous because it's the film that Christian Bale made right before Batman Begins and he lost like a hundred pounds to make. Yeah, and it's famous because of the way Christian skeletal. Bale looks. That's right. that, I mean, that's honestly all I really absorbed from the movie. It wasn't a bad movie. It you know, it had mm -hmm. a twist. What a twist. There is a um, twist. But all I remember is God, Christian Bale looked so horrible. Just right. wow. And as a result, it it has been pulled into the lore of the Batman of the you know Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy because he made the Machinist. He lost this hundred pounds. He was under a hundred pounds, skeletal, and he went immediately from that to his training for Batman Begins and went to two twenty. Right, yeah. put on two you know one hundred and twenty pounds of muscle in eight months or something, which is not and safe. So, <laughs> No, no. Doctors basically told him, he said, if you ever do this again, you'll, your heart will probably explode. You will die. Um, <laughs> you will have and, a case of death. <laughs> yeah, like you, you cannot do this to yourself, Christian Bale. This is not okay. And, uh, you know, he seems to have taken that advice, although um, I guess he gained a lot of uh, a lot of weight again for the, uh, the Dick Cheney movie that he did. <laughs> I guess he gained quite a bit for that. Um, you know, and a few others, but yeah. So I think it's sort of, um, sort of intrinsically tied to that lore now. And, and so the movie, you know, has a little bit of an afterlife 
because of it. Even though, as as you said, The Machinist is not it's not a brilliant film. I think it's an inferior film to to this one in a lot of ways, but it's it's treading a lot of similar ground at the same time. You know, it's a character. Basically, it seemed like Brad Anderson was really, really interested with playing with the idea of what the camera is showing you is not the actual experience of the character. Right. Um, which is, is really what this movie sort of hinges on. So before we get into our debrief, um, we'll, we'll do the synopsis a little bit, then we'll talk about some of the reviews. But the, the basic setup for this, and I, this is where I say that for me, for a horror movie to really work, the setup has to be good. Um, and most of the time it's not. Right? Yeah. Most most horror film setups are very simple, very basic. <laughs> but let's let's look at some of the best, right? The thing. People in an Arctic research base, absolutely isolated, there totally is cut off from any help, <laughs> and there is a thing inside that group to make it so that you don't know who who you know who's the bad guy right it's it's terror it's isolation it's great right and and it drives the the characters in the film to make the decisions that they make right so the setting and the the setup are part of that experience the second one i'll mention that i absolutely love is sinister um i have my issues with sinister i don't think it's a a, a bagul problem <laughs> um yeah vincent d'onofrio on skype is one of them <laughs> Um, cause it seems like for about a three year period there, that's the only way Vincent D'Onofrio was willing to act was, yeah, I'll Skype in. I don't have to put that. pants on, right? All right. You know, I'll put on this, this heavy metal t-shirt and you can just record whatever. Um, and, and just the way that they tried to mythologize, you know, that character in Sinister at the end, I think was unnecessary, but the setup for Sinister is one of the best horror setups ever, right? Because it, they took the time to answer the one question that most typical demon slasher, whatever horror movies never want to answer, which is why don't you just get the fuck out of there? Yeah, just, just leave. leave, get in a car and drive. If Michael Myers is on foot and you're in a car, drive 300 miles, call the cops and he's going to, you know, it's going to at least take him a little bit to get there. That's right. why the so end of the Texas go. Chainsaw Massacre is so effective is that she just drives away. <laughs> she gets in right. the truck and she gets away. Right. The The problem is she just didn't do it sooner. Um, but with Sinister, you know, they, they build it up that this guy's a writer. He's got to restart his career. He needs. He he's needs invested. Fuel. He's, he's too invested in in writing this out so that he can find success that he's willing to put his family on the pyre. Right. And that is a great motivation and it drives the rest of the film. And when things go terribly wrong, you're, you, you look at the guy and instead of being like, God, you're an idiot because you didn't just run away, you go, God, you're an idiot because you had the chance and you didn't take it. Right. And it's, it's just a really, really great setup. And this one is a really great setup for me as well. Again, isolation is at play. There's a time crunch at play. So you have to keep pushing forward. We can't stop. Um, because of the, the basic setup for this is that uh, the city is is decided to rebuild and repurpose this uh, mental asylum, Danvers Mental Asylum. Uh, so the city's decided they don't just want to let it languish anymore, so they need to get rid of the asbestos that they know is in the building. 
So they are taking bids from asbestos cleaning crews, uh, of which all of our characters are a member of one of those crews. And they know that they can get the job if they bid to do it in less time than their competitors, right? Even take more money, but do it faster because they have to get this project started. It's a very so believable they, setup. Hundred percent. As someone who is, you know, throughout my uh, my high school years and a little bit into college, uh, I worked in construction. I can tell you, I've had many conversations with my boss that when he didn't want a job, it wasn't that he bid too high. He would always tell them, "It's going to take me this long," and he knew that that would be the thing that would trigger them to kick him off because he didn't want to do that job. I don't want to take that job. So he'd say, "That's going to take me six months," and they'd be like, "Oh, well." whatever. And he's like, that was the thing I always knew. So this was very believable for me because basically what our crew decides to do is they say, we're going to get it done in a week, right? We are going to complete this project, this massive project, because uh, this place is huge. Dozens of floor, you know, a couple of different floors. Uh, they say it's got a bat structure where it has a central body with wings that flow off, which is a great image. Um, but they, they just do a really, really, really good job of setting this up that these guys are going into this terrifying place, working as hard as they can for as long as they can. And, you know, they're going to try and, and get this job done. So, uh, a great setup. Um, obviously once they get into the place, uh, one of the people discovers a, a series of, of audio tapes of a session, a recording with a person, a former patient that apparently has some form of dissociate identity disorder and is displaying multiple personalities. And the doctor is attempting to get them to recount the events of a Christmas 20 years prior, uh, where obviously something terrible happens. Uh, and then pretty much everything else unspools from there. Uh, it's a great premise. If you have not seen Session 9, I would highly encourage you to pause. Go to ye old Netflix, which I'll assume that you have access to because who doesn't these days? Uh, and watch Session 9. It is streaming there for you right now. Uh, but if you are interested, then here we go. So, Session 9, directed by Brad Anderson, starring David Caruso. Um, the, the real lead, though, is Peter Mullen. Yes. Uh, who plays Gordon Fleming, the, the head of this, this company that does asbestos clearing. Um, who, a lot of people at the time, I didn't know him from anything else. I mean, he's got like a blink and you'll miss it part in Braveheart. Um, they didn't make him drop his Scottish accent for this, which I thought was, uh, was pretty awesome. You know, he still has it, uh, instead of making him try to Americanize, which was kind of cool. But now people probably would know him primarily for his role on Ozark, uh, where he played Jacob Snell, uh, one of the, the mini sort of Ozark crime bosses that, uh, Jason Bateman runs across <clears throat> in that show. Um, and he's also, he was uh, on Westworld. He played the one of the founders uh, he of the, played, uh, the James Delos, Delos company. Right. Um, so people That's what I remember well. him from that's not this movie. <laughs> right. But he's been around for a long time. He's done lots and lots of different stuff. If you look through his IMDb, he's, uh, you know, kind of been around for a long time. He got his, his short turn in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows. you know, just like every, you know, UK actor, he, he had to be in Harry Potter. 
but in any case, uh, Mullen is is the real lead of this film. Although uh, David Caruso, even at the time when this came out, it was the one who got first billing, uh, and he he is a huge part of the movie. And he's great. This may be my favorite thing that he ever did, because uh, I mean CSI Miami's whatever. I mean he played that character well, I suppose, as well as that character could be played. But uh, you know this is <laughs> this is probably David Caruso at his best, it, and this is the I guess it's the second to last released film that he ever made. He did not work in movies after this. Um, he well, did why one would more you? movie right <laughs> after it. Well, basically, yeah, he did CSI for 10 years and then he, he basically retired because he, he was in movies for like 30 years, right? I mean, he did it for a long time. Um, and so he's he's basically retired now. But this is his last, you know, sort of or one of his last film roles. Uh, we also have, as you said, Paul Guilfoyle uh, as uh, Bill Griggs, who's like, he's supposed to be like the mayor or something. <laughs> he's, he's whatever city official is taking bids on this thing. Mayor Cop. Small part. <laughs> Basically just a, yeah, he's, he's cop mayor. Uh, he's basically just there to provide exposition about the facility and, and set up the, the sort of basics of the story. But uh, he's got a nice little scene. And then uh, Josh Lucas, who, uh, as we said, is is sort of doing a heel turn here. He's kind of unrecognizable. He's got like a weird uh, like handlebar mustache with a soul patch. It's just... It's a little strange. It's, it's, I mean, Josh Lucas is kind of known for playing these clean cut, you know, he's like the he's the really nice guy that the girl leaves to be with Matthew McConaughey, right? Like that's, that's Josh <laughs> Lucas's career in a nutshell. Like he's not a bad dude. He's just the nice guy that isn't quite as nice as the guy that the girl ends up with most of the time. Uh, and then a few other people here and there, uh, Brendan Sexton, um, who I guess most people know from what, empire records, I guess he was one of the guys in, in that little crew of people, uh, and he's he's you know sort of decent character actor, but those are sort of our main four guys. But so they they go into the facility and and things go crazy, and the Rotten Tomato score I think has been inflated since then. If you go back and look at like the top critics from the time, only about twenty of them reviewed it, and not a lot of them liked it. Um, but if you look at the total Rotten Tomatoes score, there's a lot of stuff from like Cinefilm on demand, right? Like a lot of smaller horror film websites that have come on and said like, this is really good. Such as, for example, uh, Father, Son and Holy Gore, you know, <laughs> who doesn't go to Father, Son and Holy Gore for their movie reviews? Well, I do uh, now. Yeah. And he reviewed it in 2019. And of course he gave it a positive Review. So at the time that this came out, it got middling reviews at best. And even with all of these positive reviews in the years since, uh, it stands at about a 64% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is not bad. It's certified fresh, I suppose. Well, not certified fresh, but it's not a splat. Um, again, if you look at just the top critics' reviews, eh, it, it's it's a little less, a little less glowing. But the... I think the real problem here is that I don't think anybody has seen this movie. Uh, Despite how long at... <laughs> it's been on Netflix, nobody's seen it. Yeah. Right. Well, again, if we use the audience score and the number of user ratings as a metric, uh, it's only got 25,000 ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, which, if, you know, even some of the quote unquote unknown movies that we've discussed in here had like 100,000. So 
I get the feeling that the people who really like Session 9 are small in number, but they're very vocal and they're very passionate. Um, and, and rightly so. But I, I think that's the real failure of this film. It's not that it, it was unsuccessful. I, you know, it was extremely low budget. So even with making only a couple million dollars at the box office and the festival circuit, it still made money. It's obviously made money from Netflix and streaming deals and, and home video sales and stuff. So, you know, I don't think it was it was an across-the-board failure. I think its real failure is that it was such a small project. And at the time, the indie sort of... The way to get people information about your indie film was so narrow. I just don't think many people know it exists. And so that's that's why I'm excited to talk about it. Because this is one that I absolutely think, uh, if you are a... a horror film fan a thriller fan i think this is a movie that's probably going to be worth your time but i guess we'll find out so some of the reviews uh that didn't care for session nine um there was some variety you know a lot of the the reviews that we read on here they they sort of fall basically they're all saying the same things in slightly different ways this one was a bit more variatist but um you know still kind of hitting on the same notes so the first is uh, Dave Kaur from the New York Times, and he says, long and aimless. And that's pretty much it. Mm. Uh, which which at a, an hour and 40, I actually found this film fairly swift. Um, I did too. It didn't bog down, even at the, even, you know, the first time I watched it, I, I didn't remember it being a film that was was slow and plotting. I, I think there are some some sort of like inhale exhale moments where the film is just sort of like taking a minute to breathe. You know, a lot of the times that we see our characters, they're like chilling out, you know, laying around, taking a break, uh, which for a job that's so you know going to be so difficult to complete in seven days, you wouldn't expect to see. But you know, so I think that might sort of convey this idea that a lot of our scenes aren't aren't really driven by plot, but in any case, uh, so long and aimless, uh, Lou Luminick from the New York Post said that the problem with the film is that it wasn't even remotely scary. Which, again, I think this depends on your definition of horror and what a frightening sort of scary film is trying to do. And really uh, and what then, you're looking for in a film experience, I guess. Oh, for sure. I mean, and that's always part of the critical response, I suppose. But um, I think it also speaks to where horror movies were in the year 2000, um, which is to say not in a good place. Um, there were certainly standout examples uh, at the time, but I mean, we're just coming out of the 90s. And, and really, we had only started to get, you know, Scream obviously kicked things off, but then very quickly went off the rails. Um, you know, like... I know there are passionate Scream fans out there who love Scream. I mean, I can tolerate Bless Scream their 2. Hearts. I can tolerate Scream 2, but Scream 3 and by God, Scream 4. Jeez. Oh, man. Those movies are just bad. I like just so bad. Um, I, again, they have merit, but I, I don't. I, there is never a time that I've sat down on the couch and said, looking at my vast film library, hmm, Scream 3. That's the one. That's the one for tonight. I, who would? I, I just can't imagine that world. And I know those, those die-hard screen things. Yeah, but it. not for me. But anyway, so I mean, the two thousands were. There was certainly the beginning of the horror renaissance. Um, you know, very quickly we would get Twenty Eight Days Later and Dawn of the Dead remake, and you know all of these ones that are just generally you know the 
the people, the ones people point to and say, this is horror coming back. So if that's what you're expecting, gore, blood, um, you know, practical effects and dismemberments and stuff like that. Okay. Yes, this isn't going to fit that bill, but this is much more on that sort of atmospheric side of horror. Um, you know, sort of what, I don't think we would get another good example of that. Uh, I think Blair Witch was a good example of that, but I don't think we'd really get another one until Paranormal Activity, um, which true. is not is not a great movie, but that movie scares you by doing nothing. It's e- <laughs> it's effective. I mean, no matter right. what you think of it, it's it's very effective. It's very good at what it's trying to do. Um, you know, like if you watch a. a an effects breakdown for that movie. 90% of it is here's a piece of fishing line. I'm going to jerk this door open. You know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. And, and I and admire when horror movies can do that. I really, yeah. Do. I mean, if in, in a lot of ways it goes back to the original days of horror where, you know, shoestring budgets, no time, you know, gotta move, gotta try and create these moments. And, and you just kind of pull out all the stops to make it work. Uh, supposedly That's how, there's a really you know, spitting pea soup happens. Right. You you have to come up with something. Um, supposedly there's a film on uh, Shudder right now that I need to check out. Um, did you see Unfriended when that came out? You know, the one I, that was like the... I always was, meant to, but I didn't. I mean, I'm not going to recommend it. It's, it's, it's fine. It, it was better than I expected it to be, but my expectations were that it would be total shit. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to give it like a glowing recommendation, but it was the whole idea of like, you know, horror via Skype call or whatever, you know. And really the best movie of that is, oh, what was the one with, uh, I'm just going to call him Sulu. I shouldn't. That's a terrible thing to say. Uh, the guy who played Sulu in the new movies, he did one called Searching, I think. From that was Herald all done through cool. like, you know, internet windows and chat IMs and emails and stuff. That one was a really good one of those. Excellently done. Unfriended, sort of a bad version of that, but scary and, and interesting at times. But there's a dude who did a short film of a, a like a seance over a Zoom call gone bad. And he got, Shutter gave him a little bit of money and he got to do it, you know, a larger version. It's still only like 45 minutes long or something, but people have spoken to it being really good. But the main thing that I'm interested in watching is they did some behind the scenes stuff. And basically, since they were all under quarantine, because they did it during the pandemic, all of the people on their end of the calls were responsible to set up the special effects themselves. That's and then cool. run them themselves. So like one of the scenes, you know, there's a typical like, you know, all of the kitchen cabinet doors flying open at once. And it was, if I remember correctly, it was straight up like the actress's boyfriend laying on the floor behind her chair with like a bundle of fishing line in his hand. <laughs> and then on the queue, he just ripped all of those doors open with the fishing line and you just can't see it. Um, you know, see, it's that kind of clever stuff, filmmaking. You know? I like it. Right. Even if the film's bad, I respect it for doing that kind of stuff. And, I mean, and that this kind movie, of ingenuity is how we got uh, Evil Dead. Right. Yeah. It's very much the same Raimi school, right? We're just, we're, you know, a couple of, you know, guys and gals on, on break from college. We've got this, you know, 75 grand that we raised from my dentist and we're going to go out to a <laughs> cabin that we found in in Kentucky and just, you know, dump buckets of blood over people's heads and and run around screaming for a couple of hours and, and make something iconic and classic you know it's like it's it's a really cool it's a really cool ethos that i can get behind and session nine in a lot of ways feels like that um because 
they're using the setting brilliantly, right? Like the, the place is another character in this movie. And if anything, it's the most important character. Cause I don't think this movie would work if they would have had to build all this by hand and make it look like this. Um, but in a lot of ways, Anderson and his crew walked into a tremendous gift with this location. Um, because it's it's perfect for this kind of film. So uh, again, whether it's scary or not, probably dependent upon your tastes. But given what horror was at the time, I could see a lot of people, you know, feeling because it was a similar there was a similar complaint against Blair Witch um, that nothing happened. Right? It's an hour and a half of people running around in the woods without much payoff. Well, anyone who thought that can go straight to hell because that movie was terrifying. <laughs> that it, it, I watched it not too long ago with a class of film students. Still scary. Um, and it is still terrifying. But it is perfectly acceptable to watch as as a student film because there's nothing in it, right? I mean, what are, it, what are you going to say about its content? Yeah, she's crying in a tent in the woods and saying she's sorry. That's it right? Uh, the tension is entirely created through ambiance and atmosphere. And that's what this movie's doing a lot too. And those talented also, little actors, <clears throat> like that is one of the best examples of a performance being able to carry a film. Mm. Very true. Yeah. Like it's um, untrained people providing performance that's, uh, you know, you couldn't really get out of just anybody, which is kind of cool. All right, so just a couple more. Uh, Kirk Honeycutt from The Hollywood Reporter. The film never creates any true suspense, and the bloody climax feels forced and phony. Um, so this was a thing I heard echoed a lot, was that the, the film, as it is sort of fumbling its way to its conclusion, because uh, it does have a couple of big reveals. It is, you know, this is the era of twist horror as well. Uh, this is several years after, or, or not that long after, um, The Sixth Sense. It was kind of an expected thing that your horror movie would have a gotcha at the end. And, and this one does to an extent, although I think it's more earned. The first time watching it, I, I can understand it not being earned, but watching it through again and seeing how all of the pieces that you need to understand are present but you just don't kind of understand them in context throughout your first watching. I think there's a lot more going on here than just, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, but that was a, a sort of common refrain that I saw. Uh, David Edelstein from Slate. The final illuminations are a poor return on nearly two hours of ear bucking, eye stabbing incoherence. <laughs> Ouch. Which I think is, is a bit harsh, but I, I can kind of see where he's coming from. Um, it's, it's, not an incoherent film, but it's not a film that is trying to answer your questions. Um, if anything, it is more interested in asking questions and then letting you stew on them than it is answering them. Uh, and the ones that it chooses to answer may not be the ones you're more interested in, uh, which is, is understandable, I suppose. Uh, despite the talent involved, this is uh, Rex Reed, classic uh, film reviewer Rex Reed from The Observer despite the talent involved and the unbearable atmosphere of the asylum the script is a letdown and the final resolution is more ludicrous than convincing uh, and then Jay Carr from the Boston Globe as the violence escalates the store of ominousness shrinks and gives way to silliness leaving some talented actors high and dry 
Uh, so again, a lot of issues with the conclusion, a lot of people talking about slumming actors, which again, we talked about la uh, with the Frighteners, right? A lot of people saying, hey, these guys are slumming. Why are they doing these, these crappy horror movies? Um, which is again, always interesting. But uh, a lot of people felt that, you know, Caruso, who had, was, he had a name at this point. He was certainly not at the pinnacle of his career. He had kind of, he was a TV swings. butt. I mean, he was the T. He was the TV butt guy. Uh, he'd had a couple of movies in the '90s. Remember Jade? Um, uh -huh. Gosh, who made that? That was. Uh, Wait, wasn't he in Kiss of Death? Yeah, yeah, he was in that one too. That movie was uh, awesome. <laughs> and uh, Proof of Life, he was in that, which was one of the earlier Russell Crowe joints. Um, that was the one he did with Meg Ryan. It was all about like ransoms and kidnapping and stuff. Uh, yeah, he was in that too. So, I mean, he had, he had done things, right? But he has, <laughs> was certain, he had never really broken through into that. David sort of Caruso, doer of status. things. <laughs> he was a doer of things. So from the reviews that I read, the common problems, a lot of people felt that it was underwritten, right? That the characters, even though they were, you know, sort of broadly drawn, never really get their due. Uh, and the film never really answers all the questions that it poses. So those are two things. Uh, it doesn't do much with its actors. Um, that was another common complaint. The ending, while twisty, is a letdown and doesn't really pay off some of the major things that they'd set up. And they said that it often confused incoherence for atmosphere. So those were the big complaints. Uh, again, I can see where they're coming from. I don't necessarily agree. But I think we can... In looking at them, we can agree that this is a cast that most people were expecting to love and a setting that got a lot of people's attention. But the real issue that seemed to come through in a lot of the reviews I read was that they didn't really pay any of that off. So I guess that will be one of the questions that we try to address. So let's get into the debrief. Uh, again, this is not a super long film, so we'll probably try and, and move through it fairly quickly. But um, Session 9... It's, it's opening uh, sort of kicks us in pretty much immediately, or, or at least it gives us the idea immediately that, that this world is off kilter, right? Uh, I love the opening shot of this movie uh, because it is the, the cover shot um, of the, the uh, psychiatric patient wheelchair in the hallway, um, but it is upside down, right? And then it slowly rotates to right side up. And so these things for me are, are, are very straightforward sort of. It's an example of a director using the language of film to let you know immediately that something is wrong, right? That the perspective of the world is incorrect. Um, you wouldn't necessarily have to, um, you don't have to take it that way, but you know, it's the same basic effect of a Dutch angle, right? Like it's, it's a shot that's meant to show you that something is amiss, something is wrong. And in this one, I think it's all about shifting perspectives uh, because Session 9 is a film about perspective and how perspective changes. So we open, um, I guess the, the soundtrack at the beginning is really supposed to be um, you know, sort of like a, a sort of futzing out radio, right? Because that's that's our first shot is is uh, Paul Mullen as Gordon, Gordo, Gordy. Um, 
sitting and, and listening to to the radio as he's you know waiting for people to show up so he can bid the job. And I've got to say, right off the bat, and again, this is my my second time watching it, so I do have a bit of perspective on it. Right off the bat, you can see just how tired this dude is. And and I, I really love that because it becomes it becomes a huge sort of point in the film that that you know he's not sleeping really kind of nobody is sleeping, but he just seems so completely out of it. Um, and he's he's having conversation. David Crusoe's in the car with him, and and they're talking about his his family, right? All the things that have been going on with him. And so we find out very quickly uh, he's married. They have a young daughter that uh, the daughter just had her christening. So that kind of places her around, what, 18 months, 12 months, something like that. But, you know, she's young. And and so we get all this, you know, quick information. Again, good exposition, very clean, very straightforward. Um, we pan back and we find out the name of their company because it's written on the side of the van or hazmat cleanup agency. And they've been, been waiting here with the security guard or some kind of security guard to get into the place so they can bid the job. Um, get a little bit of background on the hospital, right? And so we find out that the place has been decommissioned for quite some time. Um, and, uh, you know, that you know, people have been ransacking the place uh, and then we get the first thing, because this movie needs us to feel like this place is potentially dangerous. And so one of the, the jobs of the security guard here is to let us know that patients sometimes return to the facility, even after years of absence. They'll come back because they were here for so long that they see it as their home. Um, which, you know, I think is a, a nice setup. It's a lot of the stuff that gets discussed in this film throughout it is it smacks of urban lore, right? The stories that would, would grow up around a place like this if it was in your area. And, you know, I, I really like that quality. It's hard to write that kind of dialogue. I know I've, I've mentioned Blair Witch a couple of times already on here, but that is the thing that Blair Witch does that makes that movie work. Yeah. Is that the way that it, it establishes the mythology of the place is so effective, right? And a lot of it has to do with them going out and doing, you know, live footage recording with locals um, and and getting their their input on this thing that isn't real, right? But shooting it in such a way that it feels real. Writing this kind of mythologization of a place or of a people is surprisingly difficult to do, right? It's just, it, it can come off as super clunky. And in some ways, Session 9 is a bit clunky, but it, most of it lands, right? So the patients come back. The place has been decommissioned. Sometimes there are vandals. Um, you know, and, and really quickly, we've got just like the briefest, you know, sort of introduction. But then they hold, right? Instead of immediately driving up to the place and seeing it and being able to visually associate those two ideas, we get a nice little interspersed moment. Um, and the movie starts building out its characters, uh, in, in whatever ways it can. So we find out that Caruso and Gordon have been working together for a very long time, right? This is not their first rodeo, that Gordon is the owner of the company, but Caruso has been sort of his right-hand man for a long time, and they have very different perspectives on how these jobs should be done. 
They have really great chemistry, by the way. The actors all really work well together. Yeah, it feels like one of those casts that we're told to just kind of hang out and get to know each other before the movie started. Uh, I couldn't find anything that indicated that, um, but they certainly have a, a, a sort of common parlance that they all share. They f- And even though they aren't, many of them do feel like sort of working men on a crew, right? I, I believe it anyway. Um, because I think a lot of movies go too far in the other direction where there's total harmony, you know, like, again, you know, I've, I've worked on crews before that have had rotating people coming in and out and, oh, so-and-so, you know, he's not going to show up this week because, you know, he got paid and he blew off to go wherever. Like, I've, I've been in situations like that. And the real truth about people who work together in these types of jobs, based on my experience, is that movies usually go too far in one direction or the other, where there's total harmony and everybody loves each other, which is bullshit. Or there's absolute disarray. They loathe each other. They want to kill each other at every moment. And this movie, for the most part, strikes a really good balance of people who are working together that don't necessarily like each other, but have learned to tolerate each other well enough that we can do what we need to do, right? And and that is a difficult balance to strike, especially in terms of in terms of the dialogue that these people would have with each other. And this movie gets that down really well. And I love the rapport between uh, Gordon and, and David Crusoe's character. Was it Paul? Is that his name? Uh, yeah. Phil? Phil. Phil. Phil, yeah. Um, and so here we find out that they've got different philosophies, but they are well aware and, and we're told very quickly they have to get this job. Right, they have no choice because they need the money. Like the company is on the point that if they don't, if they don't bring some money in very soon, it's going to fold, and they're just not going to have jobs anymore. So there's this huge pressure on them, and Caruso is saying, "Hey, let's let's just bid it fast, as fast as we can. Let's say we can do it." And then Gordon's like, "But I'm not going to do it unless we can be safe. Right? We have to be safe about it." And and, you know, so we get this nice setup right at the start that these two guys are, are sort of diametrically opposed. They work together. They do. They have common goals. But yet at the same time, Caruso is much more willing to sort of bend the rules for things to get the job done. And that becomes important. <laughs> it does. It does. Like this is, is set up for a payoff much later in the script. And then after this little interlude, we get our first shot of the asylum itself. And... Again, I don't know if I can say how absolutely unequivocally important this location is to this film. Um, it, it is the film, right? I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about The Haunting of Bly Manor, uh, which of course is the follow-up to Hill House. It is one of these locations that the location itself is a character. The location itself is is essential to the storytelling that's going to go on here. And what a gift. I mean, I'm sure it was a nightmare to shoot there because I'm sure the place was condemned. It was probably really unsafe. There probably was legitimate asbestos everywhere that they needed to be <laughs> concerned about. Like, I have no doubt that shooting in this place was, was probably a horrific nightmare for a bunch of reasons. It would be funny on the wiki if they were like, yeah, actors were actually trained in asbestos removal. That's right. They had to be because we just were worried about busting up those tiles. Um, but it's, it's just such a great location. Um, and it's one of those locations that if if it was still standing today, it would 
be one of those like, hey, dude, we're going to rent out Danvers, right? We're going to shoot our movie there because it's so freaky. Um, you know, it's the kind of stuff, again, you see on all these ghost hunting shows where they, they go to these locations and set up and try and, you know, make them even more horrifying. But this one is completely horrifying on its own. And so um, this film... Uh, I, I've, I've, in watching it again today, I was trying to figure out if it was, it's 2001. Yeah, that's what I thought. So it was one of the first movies that was actually shot on 24p HD video, right? So this was and not, you can tell. and you can tell, right? Cause, cause in watching it again, especially in the outdoors with like full blown lighting, you can really see. You know, not digital artifacting necessarily, but you can see the digital nature of the technology. Right? It's got so a bit of a TV look to it, too. It does. Absolutely. Because a lot of TV had transitioned to 24p digital video at this time, but movies had not adopted it because it had a very distinct look. Um, so the main difference was, was that it was it shot at 24 frames per second whereas most video shot at 30 which gives it the soap opera effect right and and so like it, it is a very unique looking film but apparently that's what kept the budget down it doesn't really affect the movie once they're in the dark it actually works to reinforce the sort of claustrophobic handheld nature of the of the the camera work anyway that's true. um you know because it, it begins to feel i mean the stuff in the dark begins to feel and look a lot like uh, Blair Witch Project or something like that, where it's it's handheld video cameras, you know, consumer grade stuff. But uh, what as I was watching it, I, I needed to verify that because I, I was like, man, this looks like it was shot on digital video, but it would have been so rare in 2001. Nobody was doing that kind of work in 2001. Um, you know, if you were making a movie, you shot on film. That's just what you did. And I guess it's worth noting that this was a USA Films production, uh, so like USA TV Studios, so it's possible that in its initial version it was intended to be a TV film, which is entirely possible, but I think it got spun out to more than that at the time. Um, I, I find it really funny, uh, well not funny, but one of the main inspirations cited for this film uh, is Don't Look Now. By Nicholas Rogue, uh, which is about a married couple who go to a location yeah. and this crazy stuff starts happening to them. Uh, and Roeg is a, is a really underrated director. Um, I I really knew his name from The Witches, the Roald Dahl mm -hmm. adaptation from 1990, uh, which is scary as all get out. Uh, terrifying, terrifying film. Uh, when I was like ten, <laughs> still, I'm, I still think it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's really good, really good effects work and and a solid script and Angelica Houston, of course. But um, but so Roig, uh, it, it's one of his best films. But he is probably one of the most like low key guys that shows up on every major filmmaker's favorite filmmakers list. Right. Like one of those guys that a dude like Chris Nolan or Danny Boyle will say like, oh, Nick Roig, mm -hmm. that's that's the guy. And so Don't Look Now was was one of his earliest successes in 1973, I guess. And really, it's a story that 
examines the psychological effect on a human being of, of losing a child, right? And the, the sort of near sort of psychotic break that a human being can go through. And it's very careful. It's very studied. It's very psychological. It's very pathological. But it's, it's just sort of a, a bewildering film. It's a film that's meant to leave you sort of breathless. Um, I think Lars von Trier tried to get at that a little bit with Antichrist. Uh, although he, he tries to do a, that a lot. He goes in a very Lars von Trier direction with Antichrist that sort of becomes his own thing. But, uh, you know, Roig is one of those guys that he's he sort of established the baseline for doing this kind of deep psychological glance. Uh, I don't think Anderson gets to sort of masterpiece status with it, but it's he's definitely playing with these ideas in interesting ways. But so they go into the the thing, and remember, this is their initial, you know, bid, basically. So uh, Paul Guilfoyle shows up. He's got a great blue jacket. I don't know what it is, but it's <laughs> lovely. Uh, and he kind of takes him through the facility. And he's really good at this point in the film because we've been told that this place is scary. We're walking through it. It obviously is scary. Even in the broad daylight, this place is disgusting. It's you know, it has that institutional quality to it, but yet it's all destroyed. It's got all the great graffiti everywhere. It feels like Silent Hill is what it feels Mm -hmm. like. I mean, it's just very creepy. And I love that David Caruso is, is the guy who's creeped out by it. He's just like, what in the fuck is this place, man? And Paul Guilfoy's like, ah, you know, you know, yeah, we got some drifters. Yeah, we got squatters. Yeah, we got, eh, everything's fine. Let's, we gotta, we're gonna turn this into apartments or whatever their plan is. I don't even remember. Um, but so he's giving them the tour and he's, he's showing off truly terrifying and horrific things as if they're like party favors. You know, they walk by the hydrotherapy room where people would have been dunked in ice cold water. And, you know, all of these these horrific, you know, early 1900s treatments for mental patients. And and these two guys are horrified. And he's like, yeah, that's where they would dunk him. What, you scared of that, you little pansy? You know, like that kind of stuff. And so it's this great counterpoint because it's obvious that we're supposed to identify with Caruso and, uh, you know, and, and Gordon and and then we've got Guilfoyle here just being like, yeah, let's let's go check all this stuff out. Everything's cool. <laughs> Everything's great. You know, don't worry about the yeah, that's a dead body over there. Don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, it's like it's it's a really interesting sort of counterpoint uh, because it's obvious this guy's been through here dozens of times. Uh, he knows the facility. He knows what they want to do with it. He's not scared by it at all. But these two guys are. And uh, as they they go on the tour, it's da- dark hallways and. and broken stuff everywhere and and we see that uh gordon for the first time sees the the chair at the end of the hallway ensconced in light and man some of the cinematography in this movie is just next really nice next level stuff not everything some of it's really amateurish uh you know some of the shots of them working are just really flat and boring and 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 not you know not that they have to be exciting, but they're just very typical, standard, we're going to get a shot for our movie film. But some of the stuff is just absolutely otherworldly. Uh, again, I, I think a lot about Silent Hill, which has a lot of similar uh, iconography. You know, Silent Hill is also sort of the the horror of it is embedded in, in the hospital and, you know, people recovering from traumatic injury and, and madness and illness and death. And this, you know, since it's set in this asylum is doing a lot of the same things, 
and it's fairly well studied. Uh, you know, they're sort of playing on, you know, they, there's a lot of discussions of, you know, therapies from specific times and, uh, you know, things that have been discounted now, but at the time were considered commonplace. Obviously, lobotomization becomes a huge plot point later in the film. Um, you know, so that kind of stuff is, is present, but I mean, just these slow push-ins on the chair in this sequence Those, as Gordon... Yeah. That's it, like it, lifted from a Silent Hill game like that. It, it feels like it. It's yeah. so good. And then, you know, Gordon is, is standing and watching and then we get our first voiceover of, uh, I guess we'll just call it the voice for now. Uh, something welcoming Gordon to the asylum. Um so one of the things that's going on in this movie, and, and we'll go ahead and spoil it here, is that you know Gordon is in a bad place. He's under a tremendous amount of stress. He is is obviously not sleeping. He's tired. And so one of the, the things that begins to pop out in this film very, very quickly is the various characters, not just Gordon, but Gordon at the center of it, what is what is his mental state? What is his psychological condition? And sort of this little shot here as he sees the chair, because we see the chair, it slowly pushes in, then we cut back to his face, and then his face goes to completely dark, right? The light falls off of his face, where we can really just see the glint of his eyes. We hear the voice, it says, welcome, Gordon, and then the, you know, the, the characters like shine the light back in his face again. So it's like he's receding into darkness, right, in a very visual way, uh, which is is cool. Like again, it's very tight and really interesting. Uh, a lot of the film doesn't necessarily have that component, but this one absolutely does. The voice also, is also very um, effective too. It is good. It's it's obviously been doctored. It has some some echo chamber effects. You know, some other things going on, um, and eventually we find out that this is is or the voice as we know it is, is part of the, the, the tapes, the sessions that uh, give the film its name. Um, so they, they come out of the dark hallways, they transition through some underground spots, and their, their main goal here is they're supposed to walk through the facility and try and identify the areas that need asbestos repair and then offer their best assessment of how long it'll take to remove. So uh, Caruso's all business. He's cutting down ceiling tiles and taking samples. And then Gordon you know, sort of says, we can do it in two weeks. Guilfoyle is like, uh, Crusoe is saying, what did he say, three or four? And and so there's all this back and forth as they try to discuss the actual time. And I really like this because it does feel like an actual, you know, contractor's discussion. And if you have two guys part of the bid trying to sort of make sure that they get the job, there's a bit of that. Uh, then the other, really the only other key scene of this opening is, is they're doing the tour is the discovery of the art therapy rooms. Um, you know, basically, that uh, it was it was a common practice to have the patients fill the rooms with images that reminded them of positive experiences from home to counteract their own sort of internal states. Uh, again, we get a couple of shots of Gordon just sort of enmeshing himself in all of these photos and all of these advertisements from catalogs and some of it really morbid stuff. You know, I think there's even a shot in there um, that's uh, all of like the bodies in caskets after a shootout or something. Like there's, there's it's, it's really nicely done. That One thing I, I, throughout the film, I think is really done is that the, 
their artifacts, their production design, who's actually putting together like the books, the characters are looking at the pictures they're seeing the, you know, actually building those artifacts for the film. That person, uh, I did not look up their name, but they deserve all they, of the chef's kiss emotes. Like they've done good. Perfect. Again, the, the closest analog I can find is uh, seven, you know, somebody yeah. sat down and wrote all of those journals for seven and pasted all that stuff in there and took all those pictures and f- swapped the negatives over. I mean, like abs, absolutely just pitch perfect stuff. And there's a lot of that in this movie too, um, because this is an asylum. I mean, if we want to get really nitty gritty, if this asylum is in the process of getting rehabbed and that's what these guys are here to do, all of this shit would have been cleaned out already. Like that would have been done. Because asbestos removal, that's not their job. They would not be expected to clean up any of that stuff. Um, so, I, you know, but again, we get the impression very quickly that this is some kind of rush job. And I guess, is Gordon getting this chance because Paul Guilfoyle's character is related to his wife in some way? Kind of feels like a- it. Am I remembering that? I, it, I feel like that's part of it, that he's kind of giving him a shot. They've already There's like an extra layer really of desperation good. to this job. Right. And, you know, we like because they have a little exchange where he's like shows him his daughter and he's like, oh, I heard that Emily was or whatever. You know, they had the, you know, it was a beautiful ceremony. Sorry, I didn't make it. You know, that kind of stuff. It just it has that feel of like, you know, I'm giving you a shot here, buddy but you're not going to be able to get this job. I know you can't. And that's where he pitches. We can do it in seven days, right? I'll hire a couple extra guys and we'll get the job done in a week. Whereas the other place I know they bid longer than that. Um, and again, this feel, this echoes very real to me because in, in construction time is the most valuable component, right? The money matters of course, but it's money and time. If you can do it faster than anybody else, then I'll pay you to do it because the time is what I want. And so he he basically pitches an impossible task, which as he said, we'll do it in seven days. And, uh, you know, it's a great exchange. It's really nice. It's, it's a nice little over the shoulder shot, reverse shot. Um, and, you know, we get one nice little, little push in on Gordon as, as he basically begs for the job and says, you know, I've, I've got to have this, um, without it, I don't know what I'm going to get. Um, then we get a nice little shot. Caruso goes back into the place to pick up his bag and, and winds up back in one of the art therapy rooms. And then, you know, we just get a a push in on one of the, the articles that says, everybody thought I was nuts. Which, you know, obviously becomes an important point. So then we get Gordon going back to his house, which is a scene that we revisit uh, a bunch of times. And he's sitting in his van, the same work van that we've seen him in. He's dressed differently now. He, he doesn't look exactly the same, but he's just looking at pictures of his family. Uh, again, there's been a, a, a christening or, uh, or something of his daughter and he's kind of looking through those photos and and he's just sitting outside his own house and his wife is working in in their yard and sitting with the daughter they make eye contact and she you know sort of beckons him inside for the evening and uh you get kind of a weird feeling he doesn't want to go in yeah right here like first time through the film 
it just seems like a guy who's really tired and you know his day's over he's going to go inside but the the second time through you get the impression that he's he's dreading going inside his own home right that there's there's no peace there but we see that he has he has brought uh oreos uh he's brought flowers he he's got some some stuff that would make it seem like he's he's trying to make some peace right maybe there's been some trouble maybe things haven't been so good and he's he's trying to sort of clean the slate but then we get this this sort of disembodied voiceover that's like oh flowers that's so nice and then just screams and again the the screams sort of just segue into the sound of a generator starting up so we don't really know what they mean and here's where i think a lot of the critics complaints about incoherence come in right it's like okay we're watching this movie we see this guy he's obviously not excited about going home his wife says great flowers and then screams what does that mean and we'll find out give it time (laughs) but the film is not interested in letting us know that at this point it's an intentional obfuscation of events and there are a lot of people who still don't truck with that, right? That they are, they're not okay with you just not showing me what I need to see. But in this one, it's the central conceit. Uh, so then we get our first uh, indication of time, right? So it's Monday, right? The job begins. Everybody shows up. And uh, we see sort of the setup. They've got kind of their, uh, their clean box that they, uh, you know, get cleaned up in, shift into their gear. Uh, we see them, you know, setting up the space so that they can enter the facility and exit the facility. And here again, I think there's a lot of, of really good authenticity, right? Like these guys, they don't have to work this hard. You know, you put some dudes in Tyvek suits, you hang some plastic on the walls, you call it good, but it really does seem like somebody on the crew, I don't know who, they kind of know how this stuff actually works. Maybe they brought people in and said, if I was going to do this job, here's what I would do. I have no idea, but it feels very authentic, right? You know, the clothing, the setup, the, the respirators, you know, all that stuff feels like, yes, this, this is like actual work getting done and it helps to ground the film tremendously. But now we have more cast members to introduce. So this is where Josh Lucas comes in. Uh, and it's clear from the start that he and David Caruso's Phil don't like each other. We find out why soon enough. But they are, are not buddies. And, you know, Caruso would rather not have him on the job if he had the choice. Then we get uh, the young kid who, uh, the one from Empire Records, <laughs> we find out is Gordon's nephew, right? He's the the extra hands that he hired to help him... Um, get the job done but the kid is is an he's idiot. a meatball he doesn't know anything so he starts playing some heavy rock music and then <laughs> i forget if it's hank or, or mike the other character that tells him he's like the vibrations from the music is going to knock this stuff into your lungs and it's going to kill <laughs> you <laughs> right like these vibrations will will murder you so you're rock that's a really good back and forth with the characters that's what i really enjoyed yeah. this time through Yeah, a lot of the dialogue is is very good. It's very pointed. It's very directed. Um, it's it's really good, but it is stre- extremely directed, right? Um, 
and directed not like in in like the director telling them what to say obviously that's what happened but directed in that it's not doing more than it has to right it is the conversation that people in this scenario would likely have with each other that's what it is and there's really nothing else there and i kind of like that this movie for the most part it, it gets into it later but for the most part it stays away from that let me tell you a story a story i heard once about my dad right well, like that's, it doesn't that scene that the burbs was making fun of with skip <laughs> exactly right like it it doesn't get into that a lot which a lot of horror movies do um it it sort of it sort of keeps things very professional and and what we would expect guys like this to say and talk to each other about um it, not always like I said there are little you know breaches of that but it, it feels authentic, right? Like somebody, the guy who wrote this script had been on a crew like this before and kind of knew what that felt like. Um, which I guess we should say that our, our other character of the four, Mike, uh, that is who it is. It is the screenwriter. Uh, in this case, uh, Stephen Gavadon, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. uh, he never did anything else as far as I know. Um, this is his, his only credit, I believe, maybe a couple other things here or there, but he wrote the film with, uh, with Anderson. Uh, they kind of co-wrote it together and then Gavinon plays Mike and, and Mike, if anything, is probably the most interesting character. Um, this particular script basically takes the, for the side characters, they all have to have one thing, right? And only one thing that defines them. So for Mike, it's that Mike is smart. Mike was going to go to law school and then washed out for reasons unexplained. Uh, there's, it's kind of hinted that he went to law school because that's what daddy wanted him to do because his father was also a, a lawyer. Um, but So Mike went to law school. Hank, Hank's into gambling, right? Hank's into money. Hank's greedy. Uh, the young kid just kind of wants to do the job and, and make his uncle happy, right? Like everybody's got one thing. Phil... Is, is a bit more complex. Caruso brings more complexity to that character just by the very nature of, uh, you know, sort of the work that he but does. But ultimately his is the relationship drama that he's right. going through. Because that's, that's why he hates Hank, is that Hank somehow stole his ex-wife. Or uh, more likely after Caruso and his, and his wife had separated, she shacked up with Hank, and now it is in a source of endless beef between them. Uh, and there are a couple of good lines. Was there's that one where Hank says, um, <laughs> "He says, yeah, keep it up or whatever," and, and then Hank's like, "Hey, I can. That's why I've got your wife." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like you know, there's like some good little one-liners there. They're they're silly but uh, effective in the moment. But but Mike is also kind of our exposition guy. Uh, Mike is the one who has some additional knowledge about the facility that some of the other people don't. Because the big question that they're asking in one of their first little break times, like the security guard comes back up to check on them. Um, and one of their questions is, well, why did the place really close, right? And so the security guards, ah, like in the 80s, everybody was all about, you know, getting people with... with uh, you know, mental issues back out into the public and not keeping them cooped up in facilities anymore. And then Mike chimes in and says, well, yeah, it was that, but it was also this lawsuit that apparently Mike's dad 
assisted on. And it was a lawsuit um, relating to the satanic panic of the late 1980s. Uh, basically, uh, if you are unfamiliar, dear listeners, in the, the late 1980s, there were a, a wave of lawsuits and, and various issues, mostly in California, but, but not limited to there by any stretch, um, of people who had claimed abuse at the hands of Satanists. Usually these were in daycares, facilities where children would be left for long periods of times with adults who were not related to them. And what was discovered to be the sort of central, the, the central sort of collection point for all of these stories was a new therapy called hypno-regression therapy, uh, where basically during hypnosis, you would be taken back and regress to an earlier time in your life and remember things that you might have previously chosen to forget. And in doing so, a lot of these individuals claim to to remember being abused or involved in ritual sacrifice and all of these things. And so according to Mike, uh, this facility was also at the center of one of those trials, uh, which was proven through physical evidence to be untrue. So because the facility was the one that administered that uh, therapy to the individual, they were sued. And that was one of the reasons why the place was forced to close. So right off the bat, we're kind of thrown off kilter, that there was something going on at Danvers, um, that, that people were looking into things like that and not necessarily discovering good things or true things. Uh, so again, it's a nice story. It, it, in watching it this time, it feels a bit disconnected because it's a, it's a different character than the one that Mike begins to obsess over when he discovers the sessions. And I mean, not that those characters had to be the same, but it would have been fine. nice. But it, it it feels like this story and that story should have been more directly related to each other. And they yeah. aren't. Right? It, it's just another story. Right? And it feels kind of like a young script writer reading an article and being like, hmm, that would be an interesting thing to put into a script. I wonder where that might fit. Oh, here. And whether or not that's effective or not, eh, I don't know. Uh, like I said, it, it should have really been the same person. And then maybe the story that got out about what happened to her got it wrong, right? But the, there was something going on. Uh, you know, there's there's connections there that might have been interesting. But so Mike uh, continues to kind of, you know, throw out his knowledge. And we find out very, very quickly that, uh, you know, he's kind of like the smart one in the group. And quite frankly, he feels better than most of them, which becomes a plot point for later, too. Um, but as he's telling the story, Gordon is completely checked out and he's just staring at his phone and by God, let's just give a shout out here to early 2000s cell phone technology. <laughs> Holy cow. You love what, to see it. <laughs> what a treat. Uh, the only thing that would have been better if it was a Nokia candy bar phone, but, uh, he's staring at it and he's considering calling home. Right. But he, he just can't do it. So. So it's it's a creepy moment, you know, it's sort of the scary stories to tell each other in the dark kind of thing, just to throw off the tone, and Anderson smartly sort of cuts away to just some fantastic B-roll footage of the facility, you know, just stuff littering the halls. And... I love all the glory shots of Danvers. Yeah, it's man. It's really incredible. Yeah, somebody just had a... a 
grand old time going through that place and just filming whatever they could find. Because there was obviously, it doesn't become a factor in the film, but there was obviously some kind of children's ward in this place. And so there's just all these destroyed animals and crazy stuff everywhere. Uh, and they do a good job capturing it all. But eventually Gordon just puts the kibosh on the story. He doesn't want to hear the rest of it. Um, and, and presumably they begin getting to work. Um, I did hear a complaint from a couple of reviewers that said for people that are claiming to be doing this job faster than, than would be humanly possible, they do spend a lot of time just sitting around. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, again, if they're doing the job, they can't be having these conversations. So you've got to sort of show them in other venues in order to, to get <laughs> to get the acting done. Because uh, I can't imagine it's an easy job to act in a Tyvek suit with a respirator on. Although, given our current world situation, that may be your only option moving forward. <laughs> um, Marvel Cinematic Universe, now with right. protective Tyvek gear. Tyvek and respirators. Um, so once they do start getting into things, um, we kind of get a at least a marginal understanding of this process that basically they have to go through, they have to mark everything in the facility that needs removal. And for that, they're using this kind of like red, uh, I guess it's paint, but they kind of just go through the whole facility, spray everything in red, which of course has all these blood connotations. There's uh, graffiti everywhere, of uh, you know, Satan and, you know, all of these demonic image, all this demonic imagery. Um, but as they get into the work, we find that Mike's kind of like the tech guy. He's the one that hooks everything up and makes sure the generator's running, hooks up electricity. And uh, then we're, we're given our first other sort of, I don't know if it's a plot point. It certainly becomes important later. But we find out that uh, Jeff, I guess, the, the young kid, he has nyctophobia. And he uses the specific term, which I, again, feels a little bit like. I wrote a script in my sophomore year of college. You know, like <laughs> it feels a little bit like that. But basically, we find out that Jeff is terrified of darkness, right? He has uh, a fear of the dark. And so he kind of just straight refuses to go down into the basement to check breakers in the dark or do anything like that, uh, which, again, becomes important later. But it is a, a sort of recurring theme that Jeff doesn't handle that stuff well. But in any case, it's good that he doesn't because it, as Mike's repairing the generator after the kid screws it up by messing with the machine, uh, he finds the records room, uh, which somebody set up a light in. I don't even know who, <laughs> I guess. Maybe Hank as he was going through doing his assessment or something. It's all those patients who come back. <laughs> That's right. They're just moving the lights around and putting it in places where you wouldn't normally see it. Um, but he finds a staff-only room in the records, uh, you know, sort of filing area. And, and stumbles across a box of tapes. Uh, and I love that they're reel-to-reel tapes. Um, I was watching, well, in, in Truth Seekers, actually, there's a scene where a uh, doctor is supposed to be uh, doing an assessment on a, a dog. He's a veterinarian. He's doing an assessment on a dog that he's working on. And we've already been told in the episode that the dog disappeared in like 1965. That was the last time it was seen. And to get the recording of the doctor, they pop in a cassette tape. Yeah. 
which <laughs> didn't ex- didn't exist in 1965. <laughs> didn't exist in 19. Uh, it didn't exist in 1975. Um, you know, an 8-track, I maybe could have let it slide, but in this case it's like no. But this one I love that they're Yeah, like you're not you're not doing your due diligence there, friends. So sorry. Um but he finds these tapes and as he opens them we get this great montage Gordon um Gordon hurts himself like he cuts himself with one of these razor knives um which uh, are really common for like flooring removal and stuff and uh, cutting Hank yourself gets, with them is really common too <laughs> yeah very much so. and they're bad cuts uh i i cut my finger with a regular razor knife when i was uh doing roofing work when i was a kid and and I still can't feel that side of my finger. Like it, it tore the nerves up in the end of my finger. It's, and, and it's never really properly healed. So I'm, it's bad. And he cuts himself. Hank gets something in his eye. Like right as, we're meant to think that right as he's opening this box, terrible things start happening. Um, and so again, you know, they sort of finish up for the day. Everybody leaves. Mike decides to stay behind. He's working on the generator. And, we don't necessarily, I, I don't know, does he go inside and start listening to the tapes that night? I really can't remember. Uh, I guess he does. He does. Yeah, 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 he does. Yeah, so we get, again, some great hallway shots. There's really good use of, of negative space and doorways in this. I mean, you know, there's there's something to be said for a director that is capable of framing things through doorways and windows really effectively. And we get a lot of that here. Some really nice setups with, you know, a character in one doorway over here and another character in a doorway over here having a conversation. It's 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 good. Anderson is a very capable director. He's one of those directors that I feel has always just kind of been right on the edge of success but has never been able to cross over. Just didn't into, have that picture, you know, the yeah, thing just, that did it. He mostly works in television now, and he's he's done some long stints. He did Rubicon on uh, A and E, which was a good show. Um, you know, he's he's definitely worked. You know, it's not that he has not found some success. He did do um, CBS tried to get a new Lincoln Rhyme series off the ground last really? year. They did, uh, and they called it like Hunt for the Bone Collector or something. Um, I don't remember, but had uh, Russell Hornsby. Uh, no, they it was a full series. They did like 10 episodes. Okay. Um, I thought they'd only done a couple. I've, I've only seen a few of them then. Um, but he did a couple episodes of that. Um, you know, he's done some, some other things, but mostly TV stuff. And he's just one of those guys that's like, he's got skill and he's got a really good eye for stuff. But he's just never gotten that. He's never gotten that project. Right, like that one project to sort of push him into the limelight, and and this one certainly serves as probably his best. I, I'd say probably his most well respected work. This and the Machinist are probably the two, but um, I, he's a director I always kept expecting to be like, oh, there's Brad Anderson, he's doing a thing again, and just never never hit, and that really sucks. Uh, there's another film we talked about doing it instead of this one, uh, Stonehurst Asylum. Uh, which came out in 2014. It's got Ben Kingsley. It's got Kane Beckinsale. Again, feels like a nice big swing. And again, it just kind of didn't fizzled out. do anything. Um, it's based on a Poe short story. So, I mean, it's got mm-hmm. some pedigree. I mean, it's it's not bad. 
but again, just just didn't didn't hit. Uh, but regardless, so Mike stays behind and he begins listening to some of the tapes he discovered. Uh, we find out that they are uh, tapes of interviews with a patient at the facility named Mary Hobbs, uh, patient number four four four, which becomes important as the the uh, <laughs> the week wanes on. Um, and, uh, let me say, I think that acting about listening to things is really difficult. <laughs> I can't imagine sitting in a room and being, and being told to act and ideally they had these recordings done and could just play them and have the actor actually react to them. But I, I imagine that he was probably just having to react to basically nothing um but who knows i i don't i'm, I'm it's unaware like of all those scenes done. in the ninth gate with johnny depp in the library it's just okay now act excited while you're reading a book <laughs> right open the book and and look excited uh flip the page and look sad or scared you know um but in essence what these tapes reveal is a woman who has had an event at some point in her past and she has now developed uh, multiple personality disorder, uh, which is a popular sticking point for films that examine psychological stress. Um, this one is not especially good with it. Um, I'm not going to say they handle it well. It is most definitely being used in its, its horror trope crutch, um, beyond a shadow of a doubt, but it's effective. Um, the voice actress, whoever you know, whatever actress is doing the voiceover, is is doing a solid job of shifting her voice around. Um, while the tape is playing, we see the chair again, uh, so it's it's heavily implied that that room or that chair is is you know Mary's room uh, or related to her in some way. And and so we find out she's got several personalities. Uh, the two that were introduced most cleanly are uh, the princess who you know, has a very high voice, obviously a very young girl, uh, then Billy, and then the doctor keeps referring to someone named Simon, who is, is unrevealed on the tapes. Um, and, and the doctor's trying to get her to, to talk about Simon. Then we get a great montage of all of the, the other characters sort of going about their business. Right, so the young kid's having a shower. Uh, Hank is in an argument with Phil's ex-wife, supposedly, uh, while he watches TV and drinks beer. David Caruso's out at a bar by himself, you know, sort of staring into a glass of beer. And then um, we cut back to the the same shot that we saw with Gordon the day before. Till just hanging out in the van. <laughs> and he's just hanging out in the van and looking at his house waiting to go inside. So because we've seen the previous shot, it's not weird for us to see this shot again, um, which I think is, is why they decided to do it that way. Uh, but this time his leg is injured, right? He's got some kind of uh, injury on his leg that's very painful. And his house, which was open and inviting, and the lights on before, uh, is no longer that way. All the curtains are closed, the lights are off, and we never actually see him go inside, which is of course important. Um, so the the you know the time counter continues. We start the next day. We again see them working, and you know I like these work shots. They're obviously being done uh, very quickly, and and you know they're. <laughs> They're not necessarily uh, 
pitch perfect in their execution, but they do establish a mood. I mean, the place is, is it's frightening to see a place covered in plastic, right? It's, it's off-putting and strange. And um, I, I think Anderson, you know, again, he uses the setting really well. Um, we get another shot of Gordon sort of walking off by himself. He's looking out a window at some kind of outdoor chapel, I guess. It's got crosses on it, so I don't know exactly what it's supposed to be. But um, we, And then he hears the voice again, the same voice that he heard earlier. Um, you know, <laughs> again, I feel like the movie's working really hard to start showing how the tapes are creeping into their lives, right? It feels like that's what the goal is with these scenes is that they've unleashed something like that's what the movie's trying to do. And if I'm, if I'm being honest, I don't think it's very good at it. Yeah. Um, it's struggling to sort of do this. Whereas a, a person like, and again, this is unfair, but let, you know, like a David Fincher, they're going to be much more adept at sort of working these things in. You know, Fight Club's a good example. You know, your second watch of Fight Club, you realize that all of the information that you needed, all of these little things that characters were saying that seemed innocuous at the time are actually incredibly relevant to the proceedings. This one, it tries to do that, but much clunkier, right? I guess the most obvious example is that Mike calls uh, the young kid princess, right? Like, like he's adopted that term. And he doesn't even realize that he does it. You know, he's like, um, you know, because the kid's like, I'm not your princess. Shut up, man. And, and, and they have a little little altercation about it. And so it's, it's obvious that they, the filmmakers want us to believe that there's a real spiritual component, a supernatural component to what's going on here. But A, I don't know if they need to do that, number one. And B... I, I don't think it lands, like I said. Yeah. I, I just I don't think it really hits. But what this movie does do really well is is actually take true things that happened in facilities like this and expose them and surface them in in this story. Because the next thing that happens is that Josh Lucas, Hank, is going through the basement, he's marking stuff for removal, and he again the one thing we know about him is that he's greedy, right? <laughs> uh, he finds uh, like a silver dollar, I guess is what it is. Uh, an old one, like from the 1880s. He finds one and then he follows them to a hole in the wall. He opens up that hole and just a ton of them spill out. Now, again, if you know anything about asylums and, and facilities like this, they were... They were all in one facility. So I guess that even gets mentioned earlier. They say it had everything, right? You, like you could live your whole life here and never go anywhere else. Um, but the one piece that nobody really talked about it becomes a plot point later is that you could also die here. And if you died here, they didn't bury your body out back. They just gave you a headstone and they incinerated you. <laughs> and oh. so what, and so what Lucas discovers, uh, he, finds this stuff behind a brick and he pops the brick out and all this stuff floods out and he's like, ah, oh, I'm rich. And then the camera, and this is a great shot. The camera just pulls away and we see that it is the incinerator in the morgue. 
It's the incinerator in the morgue and the bricks that you're pulling off are the fire brick on the back of the incinerator. And all of the things that he's pulling out are the possessions of the people who were burned alive in the incinerator. Now, I don't need there to be a supernatural component for that to be creepy as fuck. Yeah, right? that's just like, effective. That in and of itself, apropos of nothing, needing nothing, is creepy and bad. And so, you know, this unfortunately is what gives, uh, I mean, this is Hank's arc basically is what's playing out before us here. Because now that he's found these riches, which can't be more than a few thousand dollars at most, you know, but for him, it's a windfall. You know, it's an incredible amount of money. Uh, now he's got to do something to get that out of the facility, which becomes important uh, at the end of the next day. So Mike continues on with the tapes. And whereas the first tape focused on Princess and some discussions of some of the other people, now this tape is about Billy, right? And again, all of this is being driven around the doctor trying to discover something that happened uh, 20 years prior on Christmas. And... It's, the tapes are effective, man. I mean, there's a reason why video games have been using audio logs to tell stories for freaking decades at this point. Is that it works. It's, a, it's a great way to convey story information. You know, then we get that interspersed with them going through the log books, like the, inter, the internment books. And they're looking for all of the, the old reasons why somebody might wind up in an asylum. I don't want to get a couple like mortified pride, disappointed expectations, you know, all of these, these things. And again, those feel legitimate. They feel real. You know, they feel like a screenwriter looking that kind of stuff up and integrating that information in. Um, and then I guess we get our first scene of disquiet in the group, right? These guys are not guys that love each other to begin with, but here things sort of escalate. And, and Mike flexing his knowledge again. Uh, they've obviously gotten Chinese for lunch. And Mike flexing his knowledge and being offended by the kid uh, basically shows how... Um, basically shows how to lobotomize someone. Yeah. Which and, is a really nice little moment. It's a good moment. He takes one of the, the you know, the chopsticks that he's, he's getting ready to eat his Chinese food with. And the kid, like, is making fun of him. Uh, they're all making fun of him for, you know, washing out of law school. And what are you doing on a job like this? You should be doing something else with your life, blah, blah, blah. And he grabs the kid and sort of very carefully describes a, a, a prefrontal lobotomy. Um, and so... If you've watched a lot of movies, you've seen this procedure referenced before. Uh, I guess, uh, not that it's a good example, but Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch is <laughs> all about uh, all about lobotomization and uh, what happens to people when they are lobotomized. Supposedly. Supposedly. Um, at least that's what we're supposed to believe. Uh, John Hamm is the one who does the lobotomization in that film, so exciting times. Uh, but yeah, so, so he gets insulted. He, he lobotomizes this kid, freaks everybody out just a little bit. Um, but Gordon seems especially, 
Gordon seems especially interested in the procedure. He's watching very closely um, and not really doing much to, to stop him. Uh, but so he describes it, and, and again, if you don't know, it's basically the insertion of a thin metal rod into the space between the nasal bone and the ocular cavity, and then pressing it back directly into the brain to destroy several key connections in the frontal lobe, which resulted in you know patients who experienced seizures or patients who experienced um, you know schizophrenia, you know, all of these like things that we didn't really understand at the time and didn't know how to treat. Um, basically it would, it would presumably quote unquote cure them, but it cured them by destroying their brains, um, rendering them effectively inoperative, uh, except for base functions. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really great scene and it, it establishes again, pays off some things later. Um, So then we get uh, another sort of key moment and probably Josh Lucas's big moment in the film, right? Where he sort of establishes the concept of the escape plan, right? That the people who do this kind of work are always looking to get out of it, right? That nobody who does this wants to continue doing this, that you always want to have a way out, a plan to get out. And the th main thing that he notes for us is that of all of them, Gordon is the only one that doesn't have a way out. This is it for him, right? He's got bills, he's got a kid, he's got a life, and this has to work for him or else everything collapses. And so it's a really interesting moment that seems innocuous but becomes very, very important to the sort of thrust of the story. Um, and I think Lucas does a good job with it. I mean, I, I, it's easy to forget that Josh Lucas is actually a, a pretty pretty good actor um you know we don't see him in a lot these days i guess the last thing i really saw him in was uh, ford v ferrari he plays uh gosh one of the early uh like ford execs one of the guys who spearheaded the uh ford mustang um uh leo leo beeb uh, or BB, I guess his name was. Um, but uh, he plays him in that, and he's kind of the villain of that movie. Um, not not quite a heel, but again, just one of those, like, I'm, I'm not a bad guy, but our goals are not aligned here, and so I'm the villain of this movie at the very least. But, I mean, you know, he's been around for a long time. He does uh, a lot of stuff. But in any case, uh, here he basically just is, is he's got to set up the idea that he plans to leave at some point because he does disappear very quickly in the movie and, and the characters have to have some way to justify that disappearance. So they're talking about the risks of the work, the way that the, the stuff can get into your lungs and kill you. And, you know, it's not going to kill you right away. It's going to take 10 years and then all of a sudden you're sick and there's nothing you can do about it. So there's all this threat, this, this existential dread that comes along with doing this kind of work. Um, and I like this scene because it feels very thought out and it feels very deeply metaphorical that I think adds tension to the film at this point. It's uh, sort of, it it's, it stops the, the whole, oh, these are just regular working Joes. You know, they actually have real stakes and they have real problems. Whereas a lot of horror movies would just say, oh, you know, they're just regular folks put in a bad situation. This actually looks at, at who they are and, and their goals and their motivations. And I don't know, a lot of horror movies just don't take the time. 
Right. And I think, you know, if you're going to say that this movie slows down, it's here. Because we are just getting character building stuff at this point. We're getting a little bit of stuff that's setting up future events, yes. But we're also kind of getting a glimpse into who these people are and the type of people that would be drawn to doing what amounts to extremely dangerous work. And um, so this idea of the exit plan, always having a strategy to get out of the situation makes a ton of sense. And I think it does a lot to sort of deepen who these guys are as he's talking. But we get, do get another sort of key scene that first time through the film, probably not going to seem too incredibly strange, but we get a shot of the flowers, right? The flowers that we know in the audience uh, were bought for Gordon's wife. And those flowers are in the back of the truck covered in the red stuff that they use to mark the asbestos or what we're supposed to think is the red stuff marked that they used to yeah. mark the asbestos. And, and so Mike sees it, doesn't really do anything with it, um, which again is, is kind of interesting because uh, Mike is framed as being... It's framed as being very intelligent and very insightful. It seems strange that he would be the one to see this and then not think about it, not do anything with it. But he doesn't. But then I, I think that's where the, the movie might be having fun with the viewer, where they think that a hero is going to emerge at some point, and then a hero never emerges. <laughs> right, yeah. No, there's, there's, no, there's no triumphant hero in this film. And uh, it, it, again, could be another reason why... Some people didn't care for it. It's because there's there is no triumphant ending um, of the traditional sense to be had. Um, but basically, the scene ends as as Mike is making this discovery. Josh Lucas is is sort of getting to uh, Gordon and how Gordon can't have an exit plan, and and you know he's seen him crack more in these last few months than he's seen him crack. Uh, in in the time that he's known him but everybody gets back to work um, we see a, a brief scene as Gordon is upstairs cleaning and he pauses to uh, call his wife at home um, and and the the conversation does not appear to go well and uh, she doesn't really respond he wants to talk he wants to get back together again and so now again we're, we're sort of I guess we're getting little moments here where we're seeing um, the film's trying to justify why Gordon didn't go back inside his house, right? We're, we're starting to sort of see that those reasons be laid out here because his wife isn't responding to his phone calls. Uh, spoiler, uh, there's a very specific reason why his wife is not being responsive during these phone calls. But and we, it's not because she's yet. mad at him. <laughs> no, that has very little to do with that at this point. But this also sets up, he sees, we're also support, supposed to understand that Gordon is growing increasingly paranoid, right? The stress of the job, his lack of sleep, obviously what's going on with his wife, he is starting to, to sort of not lose his grip on reality, but become hyper aware of the things going on around him. So he sees David Caruso outside uh, talking to some hoodlums. Uh, and hoodlums. I can only describe them as hoodlums <laughs> because it's the most stereotypical garb that a quote unquote hoodlum could possibly wear. Them and, darn uh, hoodlums. And so he sees them working with him and he's very suspicious. Um, 
we realize very quickly uh, because we, we see it in short order that David Caruso is buying drugs, <laughs> specifically <laughs> marijuana, uh, so that he could roll his own weed. And, you know, so that's why he's he's meeting with the quote unquote hoodlums. But Gordon obviously doesn't know that or at least is, is unaware of that. Gordon's obviously not cool. No, he's he's not down. Total square. <laughs> he is a bit of a square, at least in so much as we know now. Uh, but of course, uh, we, then we, we cut to the nighttime, uh, and Josh Lucas has rearrived on the scene to collect his, his wares, right? And he must know what he's doing because in this pile of stuff is like gold teeth and dentures and retainers. And, you know, it, again, he cannot be stupid enough to not know what he's doing. I got the feeling that it was like a sick, like, ah, I'm going to make money off all these dead people's stuff <laughs> yeah it, it definitely feels that way like i mean he even finds uh eyes right like some like melted glass eyes yeah or which kind of goes um, with the desperation of wanting to get out of the job right i mean we're really seeing the execution of what he described earlier right this is how he gets out um but this is the first overtly except maybe for the hallway scenes these scenes are the first, in my mind, the first really overtly horrific ones in the film. Um, I mean, when he reaches, like, reaches hard into that and pulls out that clump of stuff, and there's, like, human hair in it yeah. and everything else. I mean, like, it's that is disgusting. And then, of course, he finds the, the lobotomization spike, which, again, I'm... I'm really not sure a lobotomization spike would have been in the in the incinerator, uh, unless some doctor just really didn't care much for their implements. <laughs> I don't know, but, but he, we're he gonna go it. with it. <laughs> you know, we're just gonna go with it. We gotta have it in the movie. Um, I do love that as he's making his exit, he's collected up all the stuff, he's thrown it all in a duffel bag, he's got headphones on, which. Again, uh, I question that choice in a, a darkened facility where you need to kind of be aware of what's going on around you. But I don't know. I've been an idiot before. Some, <laughs> <laughs> he's listening to some sweet, smooth jazz and uh, and just enjoying himself. And then I, I hate to keep referencing Blair Witch, but a lot of the shots in this are Blair Witch shots because they're handheld illuminated by an actual flashlight shining a beam in front of the camera. And so he takes the patient side, right? A lot of older facilities, they would have been split to walk side by side. You would have patients on one side, staff on the other, uh, separated but close enough that they could offer directions. And and he takes the patient side, right? He could have taken the staff side, which would have been easier to move through, but he takes the patient side. And he finds a eaten can of Jif peanut butter, right? Mm-hmm. It's seemingly apropos of nothing, right? But what we find out in the future makes its presence really understandable, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we don't know that yet. And so it's it's very well shot. He sees a, a shadow sort of move behind him. Uh, again, we've been told patients sometimes return to the facility. There's hoodlums and vandals who have taken up residence there. It's, it's late at night. And so he... You know, he he gets freaked out, he runs, he gets away, supposedly, and then we get a nice little pairing of shots. We see what he sees at the end of the hallway, and then we see what someone else sees at the end of the hallway, combined with these, like, strange recorded sounds um, that feel like sped up pieces of, of 
the tapes we've been listening to, right? Like, just it, it has that tenor to it, at least. That's what I thought it was. Um, and then he, we don't know what happens. All we hear is a huh, and, and then he kind of, you know, disappears. Uh, Wednesday begins, and he hasn't shown up for work. Everything is, is, you know, people are concerned, but they've got to get the job done, so nobody's really doing anything about it. Um, but we get a couple of shots that clearly indicate as well that Gordon has become uh, distrustful of, um, of of Phil, of, of Dave Caruso's character. Even as they work together, there's a, a separation between the two of them. And then we get a quick shot of the space where Hank was removing the items, which all the items are gone. The space is still open, but Hank is nowhere to be found. Dun, dun, so, da, 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 da. And uh, then we get a first couple of shots of them on the roof of this place, which I can't imagine was easy to get up to, but um, they're up there. It's it's really, you know, it's brightly lit. It's nicely shot. It's, it's really cool. And it's a nice break from the inside of the facility, which has a very specific... You know, it's all kind of yellowed and, and gross. I kind um, of admire how many outdoor shots there are in this in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, I mean, that's what they would be doing because you wouldn't work there at night because that doesn't make any sense. Um, right. But I feel like a lot of films, especially in the early 2000s, because horror was so much more desperate than it is now, they would have gone for those like, well, we might as well just work through the night and we'll work in the creepy asylum in the dark. Right. Um, and I'm kind of glad it didn't do that. No, it, it completely avoids that trope, which I think is really exciting. The vast majority of this movie and its horrors take place in broad daylight, uh, which is a bold choice. It is easier, you know, just like the scene with Josh Lucas, which is the first, you know, truly horrific scene in the movie. It's shot at night. It's in dark hallways, illuminated by flashlights. I'm not going to say it's easy to get scares in those situations, but you're going to be able to get people's tensions up much easier in those situations. And, and it's much harder to do in broad daylight, but most of the movie is capable of functioning in that setup. So again, we get a lot of, this is a really quiet movie and a lot of what it's trying to do is being shown through the Kuleshov effect of having a character look at something and sort of stare at it in the distance for a little while and then, you know, come back. And so he seems fixated on that outdoor chapel or Gordon does and then we start seeing the cracks in between their relationship. Hank has disappeared. Gordon maybe thinks that Phil had something to do with it, uh, which becomes a major sticking point later. And, you know, Caruso, you know, basically says, we just need another guy, so let's let's call this McManus dude, um, and he'll come in and replace Hank because we don't know where he's at. Um, but we see that these dudes are just breaking. Right, like the stress of this, or at least Gordon is breaking. Uh, Caruso, maybe he were. I think the filmmakers want us to sort of be a bit distrustful of him. I don't. I don't think we ever really are. I don't think we're given enough evidence to think that he doesn't know what's going on. But Gordon, for sure, is is sort of falling apart here, and it becomes pretty obvious that he is. So there is a really good. Um, I guess you could call it like it's almost a spiral staircase, but basically up, up one of the towers of the facility is just this big spiral and it becomes important. There's a couple of scenes in it later. Um, but uh, Gordon sort of leaves the group, goes in and he's sitting at the base of these stairwells 
and that's where he discovers his his fingers right and his fingers are bloody and and sort of bruised and broken like he's been scraping at something or who knows what right and and even he doesn't know where it's from which is 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 kind of cool and and i guess we get our first our first sign that the the group is fracturing and so caruso goes into a long diatribe uh while they're sitting out eating lunch or, or whatever it is they're supposed to be doing that's that uh, Gordon, since his child has been born, has been off. Right? Something's been wrong with Gordon. He's been overbidding jobs. They've been losing work. And it's because he's off his game. And Caruso, or, or Phil's theory, is that he never really wanted the kid. His wife wanted the kid. He went along with it. You know, Maybe sort of came to love it after the fact. But it was never really something that, that he wanted. Which Mike disputes, and he's like, nah, you know, that can't be the case. But, you know, we're building this idea that maybe this thing with Gordon or whatever's going on with Gordon has been developing for a while. And, you know, I don't know, what do you think about this plot point? I mean, are they doing a good enough job here at making us distrust Gordon, who is ostensibly our main character, or are we still... The first time through, I did not get a sense of this at all. I was like, well, Gordon seems like on the level. I, 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 don't, I don't really buy that. However, watching it again, the dude, there's something weird from the start. And you, I just don't feel good about it. And I don't know if it's because I know the twist. But at the same time, he acts very strange. And... Then when it was introduced that there's marital troubles, it makes a lot more sense than I think it did the first view through. For yeah. me, anyway. Yeah, I think Gullen, um, he's really doing a lot more work. He's doing a lot of work, or Mullen, excuse me, Peter Mullen. He's doing a lot of work with his face. Like a, a, a tremendous amount of work with his face. Just the despondency of his expressions, the sort of listlessness. And the first time through, you just, I think, first time through as a viewer, you just kind of write it off. You're like, oh, he's tired, right? You know, this is, this is an abnormal behavior. And that's one of the subtle things about the script, or at least about the way the script was shot, that I think is really good. Is that all of the behavior by these characters that is actually abnormal, that is pathological, is excusable, right? Like, and I think that that hints at a really, a, a really big issue in any film that is going to try to realistically deal with psychology is that it is a very fine line between normal, acceptable, societally supported behavior and that breaking point where it isn't anymore. And that line is not always easy. And in this film, you know, depending on how you want to interpret his actions as a beleaguered young father who is, is, is stressed at his job and overworked at, and, and overworked 
anyway and then you know stressed out about his home life there's a lot of things here that we would normally do even in, in regular society to just discount that and be like ah well that's that's what would happen right uh of course it's fine but then again second time through after you understand kind of understand the full scope there's a lot of warning flags there's a lot of stuff going on here that you're like whoa no no so finally, he, he off on his own, uh, Gordon takes a walk down through those chapel, uh, which we find out is, is the, the entrance to the patient uh, cemetery, which we'd had mentioned before. And they said, you know, you never, they never put names on the headstones, just numbers. And he goes down to make another phone call to his wife, which he's in the process of. He gets interrupted. But as he's making the phone call, it pans down, and we see that headstone 444 is is right beneath him, and it's broken. Which, you know, broken headstones, say what you will, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of horror movie, uh, <laughs> a lot of horror movies that say when the headstone breaks, you know, that means that the the thing has come back to life. Uh, I guess there's a Jason movie where Jason's headstone breaks when he comes back to life, that kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, so like that's he, like a he's bad omen. There. Yeah, it's just it's a bad omen. And of course, we know from the files that Mike's been looking at that Mary Hobbs, the the voice on the tape, was patient four four four. You know, again, there's a lot of those moments. I I feel like the supernatural component of this is really, really undeveloped uh, or underdeveloped. Um, And I kind of wish, you know, while it needs to be there to to sort of add some some creepiness to the behaviors, I don't know if I like reading this movie as a supernatural movie. I Um, don't. I I, you can. I, I get that. But I don't particularly care for it. But I really do like the conversation that he has with his nephew after the phone call ends. And, and you can just see it on his face, right? He, he's tearing up. He's holding back the emotions. You know, we're having a rough time. You know, just not sleeping. And, you know, all of these things about his relationship, um, you know, as, as his nephew's the, talking to And they to him suddenly feel very relatable. All of those things feel very relatable to me. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, you, you feel the spot that this guy's in. Um then we get just a, a oh man a great montage mike has found the um the files relating to mary hobbs and uh on the uh, the tape it had mentioned sort of scarring on her chest from an injury as a child and all these different things and so we find all these great photographs that have been been made to sort of fit that bill find out that she's deceased you know that she died in the 70s or something and he just continues, you know, sort of listening to the tapes. We get more details. Uh, the doctor becomes much more insistent about asking about Simon, right? I need to talk to Simon. And none of the other personalities want to, to let Simon come out. Um, we get a, a picture of Mary Hobbs uh, in her, her patient garb, um, which, uh, again, you know, she's like... I mean, she, just lo- she looks like a, a mental patient. I mean, there's nothing especially horrific about it it's not like this is the most bog standard horror movie stuff i think that the film bothers doing yes very much so because more than this just being a sort of quiet psychological examination of these guys now we're trying to build the idea that something supernatural is affecting all of them really you know there's the tensions are high amongst everyone but perhaps most especially gordon um so 
then we get possibly the most the most straight out i mean everything about this so far has been shot very very traditionally right you know we've we've had some some long you know sort of lingering shots things like that but this is almost a dream sequence uh gordon goes back to his house he's staring at his front door again just as we've seen him do um we get a, a little bit more you know sound playing um we get a, a bit of a replay of that evening with the door open and then the voice comes back and says, do it gordon do it and we see him in his tyvek suit and he turns around and he's covered in blood um and and a little bit more a little bit more audio of what might have happened right and so i guess we can go ahead and and kind of spoil it here uh gordon has not been going home gordon has not gone home since the first night after he bid for the job gordon technically doesn't have a home anymore yeah gordon's gordon's home has, has vanished um he is uh and and what has happened and what the film has been so skillfully trying to hide is that Gordon, after the successful bid, went home, attempted to get frisky with his wife, um, you know, because that had probably been on the down low since the baby had been born, as is fairly typical. Um, and she spilled a pot of boiling water on him by accident because she was making pasta. And we've seen all this, right? Like we saw her go inside the pot of boiling water on the stove, big pot of boiling water. <clears throat> and she spilled a pot of boiling water on his leg. He overreacted. What he tells, what he Phil. tells David Caruso, what he tells Phil is that he slapped her, right? He hit her for the first time in their relationship and, um, and, and that he feels terrible, but she's not talking to him anymore. She's not responding to his phone calls. And, and he hasn't been home. He's been sleeping in a hotel. And, and so Phil is taken aback, right? These guys have known each other for a long time. And this, this shocks him that Gordon has done this. Because he's mentioned that he felt that Gordon was off. But this even still feels like a step above. But what we find out is actually true is that Gordon has killed his family. Uh, he killed his wife. And then after his wife was dead, he killed his child. And I think his dog as well it's implied yes um yes so gordon one too is, many lemon phosphates <laughs> right gordon is a murderer he is the guy that would be talked about in the burbs uh that went nuts killed his family and that was it so so these scenes that we've been seeing and these sound effects that we've been hearing are are gordon basically fighting to not remember what he's done um but we see the the effects of his leg which he attempts to disinfect in his van that night because again he's not going home he's sleeping at the asylum uh the peanut butter jar that was in the basement of the asylum was his peanut butter jar uh that he's been eating because that's where he's staying and so he attempts to disinfect the the leg uh which he's now limping from pretty frequently um and you know, it's just interspersed with these long shots of, of uh, shadows moving through the hallways of the facilities. A lot of, you know, shadow, you know, something moving through the facility that, that is, is unconnected, untethered to uh, a person. But it's heavily implied that it's, it's Gordon, right? Gordon is, is in these facilities. He's moving through these halls and he's absorbing 
this place in some way. Is it him? Is it not him? I mean, again, the film's trying to be sort of semi-supernatural here, so you can read it the way that you want. Yeah, I it's like trying to, to do I like to read it as the psychological breakdown, but... I do, too. Um, you know, that just so happens to coincide with this, you know, one of the members of the crew discovering this this previous horrific thing that may have had a supernatural component. But, um, so Gordon, Gordon is, is collapsing, right? And, and he has already crossed a significant and serious line that uh, he, he cannot come back from. And so even though he's making it appear as if he's, you know, going home each night or, you know, staying somewhere each night, he most definitely is not. So it's uh, Thursday, I guess. So it's the uh, fourth day of the job. Kind of a little shining thing with the, the days mm-hmm. where it's, it doesn't really mean anything, kind of like in The no. Shining, where it's like, this is pointless. But I like that they keep it up. Right. It's just, it, it gives you a, again, Seven had done something similar and everybody was chasing Seven at this point. Um, but yeah, it, it just, it, it provides a structure right a a loose sort of understanding of the space and time that these people are in and so caruso is 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 growing increasingly disenfranchised with gordon and feels that they're not going to be able to finish this job if he remains in charge and so he wants to sort of hire somebody else get gordon out of the process gordon of course overhears some of these conversations we already know that he is is pushing towards, you know, paranoia very, very rapidly. And, uh, you know, we get a couple shots of the kid trying to deal with his nyctophobia. And uh, so he goes down to the basement to plug some stuff back in. As he comes back up, he finds Hank in the stairwell with his sunglasses on. And these, these, this sequence is executed really well because Again, if you're if you're bought into the supernatural component, you know, you're immediately thinking, oh, this is a ghost. You know, something terrible has happened. Is it real? Is it not real? But it's it's nicely done. It's all shot through these grates. You can kind of half see um, Hank, but he's responding. He only really has a couple of things to say. Um, and so the kid goes and tells everybody this. Everybody freaks out. Uh, Gordon, especially, which is important to note. And and basically everything starts falling apart from here on out. Like this is this is we're in the the final run of the film at this point, which is one of the things I like about it. Uh, they could have really agonized over these sections. They could have pushed these sections even longer. Had more of them running around the facility, you know, blah blah blah. They they could have really 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 extended this stuff, and they chose not to, which I appreciate. Um, but they all kind of split up, which again, classic horror movie stuff. They all kind of split up. (laughs) Why do they always do that? (laughs) They always do that. Uh, here's where we get, uh, or, or in this, these next set of shots is where we get, cause I think this has been memed at this point where David Caruso is like, no, fuck you. you. (laughs) And he's like pointing the camera (laughs) zooms. Uh, and, and it's like, you know, that's from this movie, right? That, that, that gif is from, and it's a great moment too. Because yeah, you really, really feel David Crusoe when he does that. It's like, yep, you know, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's entirely appropriate in here. 
But so Gordon starts looking around the facility, uh, apparently for Hank, because, you know, he, he shouldn't be able to, <laughs> Hank shouldn't be around, right? Um, but, you know, spoiler, Hank's been lobotomized. Uh, that's what he did to Hank. So Hank is still alive. Uh, and Hank is just kind of stumbling around this place in the dark because he doesn't he doesn't know where he is or what he's doing because he's been lobotomized. And, uh, of course, that is uh, not a tenable position for Gordon. I really do love how this unspools, though, because Caruso starts, you know, sort of roaming the facility looking for Hank and, and sort of stumbles his way through what happened. Right. He finds Hank down in the basement in his little hidey hole where, where he found all his treasures. Um, naked now or in his underwear and and basically uncovers what Gordon has done. Right. Because uh, Hank is still able to tell him that Gordon's the one that did this to him. And while all this is happening. Mike, instead of helping <laughs> <laughs> which he should be doing is listening to uh, the tapes, right? Cause he's, he feels like it's important that he hear what's happening before all this collapses. And he kind of feels that way. So he goes and listens to the tapes and it's, it's the last session, it's session number nine, right? It's the, the film that we've been watching. We finally have our title. Right. I mean, he could have simply started with session number nine. He didn't have to listen to them in order. They were all right See, there. See, my attitude is skip to the end. I want to find out how this finishes. Exactly, exactly. Um, but so Gordon is, is just flat out losing it at this point. He's hearing voices. He's running through the hallways. Uh, Mike is listening to the tapes, and the doctor's finally made a breakthrough. He's gotten Princess to... Uh, to uh, communicate with Simon and, and talk about what Simon did, which of course is the big question. And, you know, things start to finally get unspooled, but right as it's getting to a crucial moment, the generator stops working. Right. And then that and generator so, sound effect is so effective. It's good. <laughs> so I mean, scary. It's, it's really good. I mean, at least they didn't use the stock like engine failing LucasArts. Yeah. Like they could have used something like that, but they actually sort of went for something kind of bespoke and, and unique. And, and yeah, it's it's a great little little horror sting. But so we, you know, we find Caruso finding Josh Lucas downstairs. He he figures out what's going on, which is great. And so again, you, you, this is a movie where you expect somebody to be the hero, right? You know what's going on now, right? And it doesn't happen yeah. <laughs> at all. You, you think which one of them is gonna gonna save the day, and nope. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's none of that because the kid gets trapped down in the basement and the lights go out, so <laughs> he is in his full nyctophobia mode. He's looking for any kind of light that he can find. Um, Caruso finds Hank, as I said. Gordon is is just roving through the facility, and of course he winds up at the chair, and he begins to hear the voice, um, and and everything's sort of rushing together here because Caruso knows the truth, so he's trying to get Gordon to come and talk to him to try and explain himself, but. Gordon finds himself in Mary Hobbs's room, 
patient 444. And he's put up a lot of pictures of the, the baby and stuff, like his, his child, and right. he's kind of like taken over the space. Exactly. So the art therapy, the thing that's supposed to help you come out of your doldrums and deal with your problems, uh, he's done that in Mary Hobbs's room with the pictures of his own family, which are, of course, bloody and in, in very bad shape. So again, Gordon doesn't necessarily know what he's done. He uh, He's sort of discovering it here. Um, the voice is talking to him, which we now know is Simon. Uh, and, and we get the, the full explanation of what Mary Hobbs did. So one of Mary Hobbs' personalities, Simon, who felt the need to protect Mary after her brother pushed her down, broke her china doll underneath her, which is what scarred up her chest, that because he hurt her, that she should hurt him back. So, of course... The two gifts that she mentions is that she got a china doll, her brother got a knife. And so Mary, at Simon's behest, took the knife, killed her brother, and then so she didn't get in trouble, also killed the rest of her family. So Mary Hobbs... As you do. <laughs> as you do. I mean, obviously, you don't want to get in trouble. Every so time I ever broke death. something of yours or you broke something of mine, I just plotted to kill our whole family. It seemed more convenient to me. Yeah. I mean, it's a straightforward thing. I mean, it's the easiest way to deal with it. But the, the connection point here is that they're both family killers, right? They killed their families. And, and that Simon... Who who seems distinct from the other personalities, like he may be something else. Um, of course, the the final line of the film is the doctor asking, well, he had asked all of the other personalities, like where they lived inside Mary. And, you know, the princess says, oh, I live in Mary's heart or something. And then Billy's like, I live in her eyes so that I can see. And then when the doctor asks Simon where he lives, he says, I live in the weak and weak the wounded. I really like that line. It's a good line. It's a great and line. And the Simon voice is so effective. It's so creepy. Um, you know, usually I don't find that whole, oh, you know, dissociative identity disorder. I don't find that very scary. I like mm-hmm. movies that have done it. Like Identity was one that that I think had a good time with uh, DID. Um but in general, it's not a very scary thing. But in this, it's actually really good. It was very mm-hmm. effectively creepy. Yeah, it's a good use of it. Again, I mean, you're you're talking about something that's been used in thrillers and horror pretty much from the start, right? I mean, because and something that the... people actually deal with. That's the right. biggest problem with representation of the idea in movies is that it is a real thing, and it shouldn't be just played for horror but it's really good when it's played for horror very well right i mean we could really look at the the genre starts with psycho yeah you know with any you know there were examples before then but psycho of course is one of the first you know major cultural milestone examples of it um but this this handles it well right and so as as gordon has continued to lose his mind and he's crossed this this place He's fallen into alignment with Simon. He's weak. He's wounded. He's broken. And so, you know, Simon, if Simon is truly a malevolent being, has found a, a, a new a new carrier, a new host. So a little a bit of an headstone. exorcist kind of thing. Definitely. Yeah. Pulling from that, that cultural well, too. Um, so we get a, a confrontation between Gordon and Phil. 
And I really like that. It's it's wordless, like they don't say anything to each other. Phil finds the room where he's he's put up this photo montage of his family. He's well aware now of, of what Gordon's capable of, or, or at least what he could be capable of. And you can see the shock on his face, right? You can see the, oh my God, how could my friend have done this? And and it's a really nice scene. Uh, we never really see what happens, I guess. I, we kind of do at the end. Um, but ultimately, we know there's some kind of confrontation. Uh, then we catch up with Nephew. Nephew's gotten out of the facility. He strips off his Tyvek. He goes to the... He goes to the van, shoved down in the side door of the van is the box of Oreos. Mm -hmm. So again, if, if you haven't picked up on it yet, the flowers, the Oreos, all the, the mea culpas that he was planning to offer to his wife to make things better, none of those were given because they're dead. And, it's a and real been dead. It's a real coach. I don't think we survived the crash moment where it's like, yeah. oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but then we get... Uh, Again, a scene that feels a bit Blair Witch uh, because it's all shot, handheld, first person, uh, and, and you know the camera begins moving towards him. Uh, the nephew is like, "Oh, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry." So we don't know exactly who he's talking to, but he opens his arm as if to hug, and then we just get a you know almost a record scratch. It's more severe than that, but you know, and, and cut to black. So if you've been paying attention, you know that Gordon is is cleaning house, right? Uh, he is his paranoia, his his um, mental instability has reached its peak. Uh, the great thing about the tape, though, the the way that session nine ends is uh, Mike doesn't hear it, right? Because he turns the generator on and he's headed back when the tape completes. So we in the audience, we hear the completion of the tape. but Mike actually doesn't get there in time. Um, so we flash one more day forward. It's now Friday. The van is still there. And uh, Gordon is still there. His, his leg is still jacked up. He's asleep. And uh, what is it? McManus shows up? Yeah, like, whatever his name is. Right. Like he's walking, you know, Gordon's awake. He's walking through the facility. Again, we get the impression that he doesn't really know what's happened yet. Like, he if he's aware, he's unbelieving. Um, and he starts basically finding all the dead bodies. So David Caruso's there, and he's kind of supporting him and talking about him. He thinks, oh, Phil did it. And then, of course, we find out Phil's a figment of his imagination. Uh, Phil is dead. Uh, Josh Lucas is still alive, and that provides probably the most horrific component yeah. of this Ooh. film and it's pretty rough um i mean in terms of climax it definitely is effective but mcmanus shows up he sees josh lucas laying on the ground um he gets into an altercation with gordon and then gordon gordon pulls the the lobotomization tool from josh lucas you know and, and like lifts his head up off the ground which is probably the great little it's probably and it's the probably sound the effect there moment. was just oh gosh yeah. nasty right he removes the or the orbital uh or the the uh lobotomy tool from josh lucas 
and then uses it to kill or or at least similarly lobotomize McManus, uh, who is it's obvious to him that something's wrong, but he just doesn't react fast enough. It's like, ah, you're so close. Sorry, buddy. What? Oh, shoot. Um, (laughs) But uh, then we we get the the clarification, if you will, that uh, Gordon has murdered his entire crew. He has murdered his family. And... As, as confirmation of that, he goes back to the room with the pictures and he makes another quote unquote call to his wife, except now his cell phone is completely smashed. I love that. I love that detail. It's really good, man. Um, and uh, I, I kind of love it. Like, you know, so it, it just sort of casts doubt on every other phone call he's made, of course, as it should. And, and you know, and, and that's that's kind of it. Like the movie comes to an end. There is no hero. Uh, nobody makes it out alive. No one lives to tell the tale. Is that maybe Gordon? Is that maybe Gordon? Right. You know, perhaps Gordon is is finally you know found a new home in the asylum. Uh, but we end with the voiceover from Simon saying, "You know, where Simon lives and the weak and the wounded." And you know, again, I don't like to read this movie as having a supernatural component. You certainly can. Um, and and it's effective at conveying that in its own way. But that I prefer this reading. I think it's a more complex and interesting reading to look at Session 9 as the sort of gradual mental breakdown of a person who crossed a line that they can't uncross. Yeah. And And the psychological stresses of that, the way that it's going to sort of tear you apart from the inside out and and eventually everything else collapses too and then that's compounded by this place and by the imagery and the iconography and the the oppression of a place like that and it and it just gets sort of you know piled on top of this guy and he just breaks um and so i I think it's a uh I don't know. I, th- I think it's a really, it's a clever script. It, it's maybe lacks a bit in execution. Sure. I, I think, you know, it certainly could have had some more out and out scares, you know, just, but I think the reason they avoided it is because they would have all been artificial. Like all yeah. of the scares that are in here are basically legitimate. You know, when, you know, it's, we don't know that it's Gordon doing these things, but you know, that's, that's what they are. They're legitimate things that Gordon would have done instead of just, you know, it's easy to have a character walk down a dark hallway and have a loud noise bang and scare you, right? But yeah. they, they don't really go down to that level without having something solid to anchor it by. And I think that that's a smart choice. Um, but yeah, so the film ends. Gordon has has successfully murdered uh, everyone in his crew and aligned himself with, you know, potentially a demon uh, or some other, you know, malevolent spirit named Simon, if you choose to read the film that way. All right, so uh, that's our debrief. Uh, again, I think Session Nine is a is a, a tight little film. It's it's inexpensively shot. It's carefully assembled. Uh, beautiful, beautiful environment to work in for a horror film. I mean, you, you really couldn't build it any better than that. Uh, I, I people have tried, and they they definitely haven't pulled it off, but. Um, you know, an enjoyable little flick. But so as we move into our our final phase, recommendations and 
uh, our, our one thing, I guess that's where we'll pick it up. What is your one thing? So again, this film has found a lot of a lot of love after the fact. It is considered now a cult classic uh, for good reason. But what do you think is a thing that could be changed about it that would push it into that mainstream success that it just narrowly missed? I think I've kind of gone, I've been going back and forth um, as I always do. I'm like, oh, it should be this or this. Um, but ultimately, I don't really want to change how the movie was made. So I, I don't want to say bigger budget or, or add more to it. But I think either fleshing out or pulling out the supernatural elements would be necessary. I would have just taken them out. I feel like you would have gone a little bit more in the David Fincher 7 category if you had. Um, just remove, not remove the, the sessions with Mary. I kind of like that that adds to the, you know, losing your mind feeling. But I sort of wish that it would have angled a little bit harder into, I'm going to throw something out and, and bear with me, into a Jacob's Ladder type territory where the mm -hmm. horror is grounded in reality. It is surreal. Yep. It is scary. But the twist is that it, it really was happening. Right. Um, and I think that would have been just the little push that this needed to see some commercial success. Yeah. I, I don't think you can find an audience really getting on board with something like this with this level of ambiguity at play, right? You need, as we've learned from many, many, many examples in cinema history, ambiguity is not the friend of, of mainstream success. Um, I love every, it. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, right? Like, you know, you'll get your inception where you knew, was he dreaming? You know, like, you'll you'll get that stuff for sure. But it's, it's rare. Um, I think the ambiguity works in its favor. But I think in a very similar vein, my issue with this movie is how disconnected the sessions are from the goings on. Yeah. Mike is the only person, the only character that interacts with the sessions and then that knowledge, the knowledge that he's gaining from spending time in the sessions on his own is never translated to the other members of the group. Because we're expected to believe that, that Gordon has stumbled across this force, this power, because he's one of the weak and the wounded, so he's vulnerable and susceptible, okay. But he never gets the opportunity to understand that force himself or connect it to some malevolent force that's in the facility. It's just the voice in his head, which yeah. that could be an intentional thing on their part to make sure that he had no knowledge of the tapes so that he couldn't be influenced. And, and as the audience, we couldn't, we couldn't believe. But they probably should have made a out. point out of that if that was the case. Right. Like I, I think a lot of it could have been solved with Mike taking Phil down to that room, especially after Josh Lucas's character disappears. Because maybe Mike, even though Mike's the smart one, Mike's the intelligent one who wouldn't be susceptible to these kinds of things, it's obvious when he's listening to the tapes that he is freaked out. Right? Like, it's obvious that the actor, who is also the screenwriter, is bringing that to the performance. He's listening to this stuff. It is getting to him. He's tapping his foot all the time. He's, you know, moving around. Like, he is nervous while he's listening to things, but he feels compelled. After Hank disappears, shit gets weird. 
take Phil down there, take the kid down there, whoever, one of the other characters and be like, listen to this. Yeah, we just need to back it up with somebody. Right. And then maybe have that character say, I don't want you showing that shit to Gordon. Gordon can't know about any of this stuff. It's That'll stress him out. Yeah. Like in, in even that would be enough to sort of tie it together. But right now the session stuff feels so disconnected from what the characters are actually involved in and what the characters are doing that I think it's it's where a lot of the complaints of incoherence come from is because we'll be going through dudes cleaning facility. And then all of a sudden get this like, but daddy, I don't want to kill that. You know, like we, we get these weird little interludes that don't affect anything. Um, You know, Mike never even hears the end of the, hears the end of the tapes before he's killed. So, you know, what was it all for other than just to just, show us the audience that this thing's going on in the background. And if that's the purpose, then they executed that very well, but it has no effect on the characters in a visible way. And that I think is a bit of a misstep. Especially when so much of it comes down to these characters and how this ends up affecting Gordon, at least. Mm, Yeah. And I, you know, it would almost be like, Well, actually, that's not a good example because in Sinister, he doesn't ever show the tapes to anybody else either. Um, you know, but it's it, it just I feel like this film, it would have grounded it a little bit more to have the other characters interact with the tapes in some way or have Mike at least try to communicate the information he's discovered back to them. I can agree um, with that. I can. Agree you know, with that. I think it would have given the, the film a bit more grounding. Uh, it would be a, a minor change because, again, I like this movie as it stands. I don't think it needs much. Um to, to really do its job. But I think that might have been the thing to, you know, sort of kick it over just a little bit. Because uh, this is, it, if you're looking for a modern, you know, Zack Snyder-esque horror film where people are getting eaten every 10 minutes, this is not the movie for you. But there is some solid gore, especially at the end. And, and there's a tremendous amount of tension and atmosphere. And that, in many ways, is harder to pull off. And I think Anderson does a really good job with it here. Uh, he revisits a lot of these ideas, at least some of the bigger ones in The Machinist a few years later with a bigger budget and Christian Bale in the lead, obviously. That's a um, movie that I'd like to watch again, having uh, watched this one now, I think, three times I've watched Session 9. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to revisit The Machinist because I feel like I might have a different take on it now. Yeah, I, I think that's probably, I, I would probably do the same thing. Because uh, they are dealing with very similar ideas, different, different end, you know, starting points, right? But they're both dealing with people whose perception of reality has been tremendously skewed by a significant series of events, um, and we, as the audience, are are sort of pulled along with them and that perspective as the film progresses. Um, which again, it's tough to pull off. Stonehurst Asylum, the the later film, the 2014 film with Kate Beckinsale, does some similar things. So Anderson obviously has a a penchant for this kind of storytelling and he seems to be able to execute it pretty well but they just haven't found that broad you know big success uh, but session nine is definitely definitely one that uh, it will play with your head a little bit and I, again i cannot state the photography that they do of the of the actual denham asylum itself or Den- danvers, danvers. asylum itself is fantastic there are just some creepy as hell shots in this movie um that are are just now basically iconic 
Like they are just iconic shots and, and really, really excellent. It's almost worth watching just to see some of that cinematography and that facility. It's very cool. Uh, all right. Well, I guess we'll get into our recommendation phase. As I said, this is one that has grown in cult status and favor over the years. But um, where do we fall, right? Is, is this a failure piece, right? I mean, it did okay. Uh, critically, it did okay as a low-budget film on the, the uh, you know, sort of festival circuit. But it definitely never found mainstream success. So does this get elevated to the, the failure piece status for you? Um, I think so. I mean, I, I certainly appreciate that it's a small film. And, mm. you know, with this one... Unlike some of the other films that we talk about, I really don't want this movie to change. Like, I don't look at this and wish it had been bigger or more popular or had a bigger budget because then I, I feel like it might lose something in translation and I love it just the way that it is. So mm -hmm. this is a huge recommend for me. I watched it just... I'm not even sure why I watched it. I think it was because David Caruso was in it. I was like, David Caruso mm. in a horror movie. I'd like to see that. Yeah. Um, and I fell in love with it. I just think that it's it's a wonderful film. It's a huge, huge recommend for me. Um, as far as my score, I'm gonna put this at I'm gonna put this really high. This is like an 89 for me, because mm -hmm. it's so good. It's just a good little film. And it doesn't have a lot of stumbling blocks. And what it, where it does stumble, it's just not enough for me to take it down anymore. Because um, it's really kind of incredible. You get a lot of great performances. And you get, you know, a, a film that is an interesting offering from a director that I don't see very much. So, yes, yeah, big recommend from me. Uh, well, I'm definitely in the same boat. Uh, it's, it's certainly a recommend. This has been one of my go-to recommendations, as I said, for, you know, sort of low-budget indie horror movies um, for people unaware of it. Uh, like one of the, as we talk, if you know, somebody's a horror fan, I'm like, hey, have you seen Session 9? And most of them will be like, mm -mm, what's that? And I'm like, you need to watch Session 9. <laughs> Do you um, like CSI Miami? <laughs> <laughs> right. Are you familiar with the, uh, with the sunglasses meme? Um it's it's just one of those movies that it it seems like late 90s early 2000s there were a bunch of these really really spectacular indie gems right low budget little films technology was getting easier uh, not easier but faster and we got some of these little ones and and session 9 is absolutely the pinnacle of those it's as you said it's the perfect blending of scale you know, available actors, <laughs> but quality actors, right? You know, so you can't, you know, most people dismiss Paranormal Activity, Blair Witch, because it has non-professional actors in it, right? So, oh, well, we can excuse their performances. Here we get a lot of that indie spirit, right? We get a lot of that indie chutzpah, but with good actors, fantastic setting, and, and pretty decent developmental technology in terms of, of how they're shooting it, how they're lighting it, how they're putting it together. And, you know, I I can't speak highly enough of it. So you're at 89. I had down 88. So I am I'm right in that same <laughs> ballpark. Like straight up, like that was the number I wrote down before we started recording was 88. Because, uh, again, it's, it's a strong recommend. There's really not anything to not like about this. The only cautionary, you know, sort of, 
thing that I would have is if you have a hard time tolerating not a ton of action, right? Like there's, there's not, you know, this, this is not a movie where some, you know, guy in a hockey mask is going to bust through a window and kill a teenager every 15 minutes, right? That's not yeah. going to happen. And, and it's not, and it shouldn't happen. That's not what this movie is, but it's tense. It's quiet. It's, it's really, really well architected. Um, Again, I think some of the reveals are kind of clunky. Uh, you know, if you haven't figured out what Gordon did by the time they finally tell you, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I am like, so sorry. Like, it's pretty freaking obvious what's happened. Uh, and they, they make sure that you kind of know. You don't know until they want you to know. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, it's not like a... You, you have know, your like, doubts. Right. It's And that's really what it is. It's just you're like one of the crew that's watching Gordon fall apart and you don't know what's wrong, right? I mean, again, this is a crew of people that work together that are kind of semi-friends. You're going to give that person the benefit of the doubt. So even though this guy is literally disintegrating in front of you, you're not going to pick up on all the cues because you're not wired to pay attention to them in that way. And and it, it feels totally believable. That last scene as David Caruso finds him in the room and he's just looking at him like, I can't believe I didn't see what this is. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't know what you've become. And he kind of gives up, right? I mean, Phil's basically done at that point. He's like, there's nothing I can do. What can I do to stop this? And and he kind of, you know, it's a moment of defeat. And again, I don't think with a lesser group of actors, you've been able to pull it off. I agree. So, um, yeah, this is a hard recommend. If you've never seen Session 9, uh, again, it's it's a frequent Netflix flyer. It's on there now. It's a perfect season to watch it. Um, it's it's a really great flick. Um, so uh, definite recommend for me too. Well, all right. Well, thanks for listening in on our discussion of Session 9 by Brad Anderson, the 2001 Ooh. film. One of the last films David Caruso ever starred in before his uh, meteoric rise to success as Horatio Kane in CSI, whatever city that was in. <laughs> no one cares. Uh, Miami, I guess. CSI That's, solving crimes. Yeah, CSI city name. Uh, part two. CSI the, the, the Who song. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, definitely a great, great flick. So where can you be found on the social medias? I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter. I can be found at uh, on Twitter at TBaskin. Uh, and of course, you can get us as a group at F Peace Theater on Twitter, and of course, failurepeace at gmail.com. Uh, so, thanks for enjoying a couple of horror films for our Spooktober Spectacular. Uh, we enjoyed talking about them. Hopefully, you enjoyed listening to us talk about them. Uh, we will be back next week with another examination, a deep dive into a near miss of cinematic history. And of course, thanks for listening, and we will see you very soon. Bye bye.